The Path of Duty by Henry James. I. His brilliant prospects dated from the death of his brother, who had no children, had indeed steadily refused to marry. When I say brilliant prospects, I mean the vision of the baronetcy, one of the oldest in England, of a charming seventeenth-century house, with its park in Dorsetshire, and a property worth some twenty thousand a year. Such a collection of items is still dazzling to me, even after what you would call, I suppose, a familiarity with British grandeur. My husband is ent a baronet, or we probably should ent be in London in December, and he is far, alas, from having twenty thousand a year. The full enjoyment of these luxuries, on Ambrose Tester's part, was dependent naturally, on the death of his father, who was still very much to the fore at the time I first knew the young man. The proof of it is the way he kept nagging at his sons, as the younger used to say, on the question of taking a wife. The nagging had been of no avail, as I have mentioned, with regard to Francis, the elder, whose affections were centered, his brother himself told me, on the wine cup and the faro table. He was not an exemplary or edifying character, and as the heir to an honorable name and a fine estate was very unsatisfactory indeed. It had been possible in those days to put him into the army, but it was not possible to keep him there, and he was still a very young man when it became plain that any parental dream of a career, for Frank Tester was exceedingly vain. Old Sir Edmund had thought matrimony would perhaps correct him, but a sterner process than this was needed, and it came to him one day at Monaco. He was most of the time abroad, after an illness so short that none of the family arrived in time. He was reformed altogether, he was utterly abolished. The second son, stepping into his shoes, was such an improvement that it was impossible there should be much simulation of mourning. You have seen him, you know what he is, there is very little mystery about him. As I am not going to show this composition to you, there is no harm in my writing here that he is, or at any rate he was, a remarkably attractive man. I don't say this because he made love to me, but precisely because he didn't. He was always in love with someone else, generally with Lady Vandela. You may say that in England that usually does and prevent, but Mr. Tester, though he had almost no intermissions, didn't, as a general thing, have duplicates. He was not provided with a second loved object. Understudying, as they say, the part. It was his practice to keep me accurately informed of the state of his affections, a matter about which he was never in the least vague. When he was in love he knew it and rejoiced in it, and when by a miracle he was not he greatly regretted it. He expatiated to me on the charms of other persons, and this interested me much more than if he had attempted to direct the conversation to my own, as regards which I had no illusions. He has told me some singular things, and I think I may say that for a considerable period my most valued knowledge of English society was extracted from this genial youth. I suppose he usually found me a woman of good counsel, for certain it is that he has appealed to me for the light of wisdom in very extraordinary predicaments. In his earlier years he was perpetually in hot water. He tumbled into scrapes as children tumble into puddles. He invited them, he invented them, and when he came to tell you how his trouble had come about, and he always told the whole truth, it was difficult to believe that a man should have been so idiotic. And yet he was not an idiot. He was supposed to be very clever, and certainly is very quick and amusing. He was only reckless, and extraordinarily natural, as natural as if he had been an Irishman. In fact, 
Of all the Englishmen that I have known he is the most Irish in temperament, though he has got over it comparatively of late. I used to tell him that it was a great inconvenience that he didn't speak with a brogue, because then we should be forewarned, and know with whom we were dealing. He replied that, by analogy, if he were Irish enough to have a brogue he would probably be English, which seemed to me an answer wonderfully in character. Like most young Britons of his class he went to America, to see the great country, before he was twenty, and he took a letter to my father, who had occasion, a propos of some pickle of course, to render him a considerable service. This led to his coming to see me, I had already been living here three or four years, on his return, and that, in the course of time, led to our becoming fast friends, without, as I tell you, the smallest philandering on either side. But I must then protest too much. I shall excite your suspicion. If he has made love to so many women, why shouldn't he have made love to you? Some inquiry of that sort you will be likely to make. I have answered it already. Simply on account of those very engagements. He could end make love to everyone, and with me it would end have done him the least good. It was a more amiable weakness than his brother's, and he has always behaved very well. How well he behaved on a very important occasion is precisely the subject of my story. He was supposed to have embraced the diplomatic career, had been secretary of legation at some German capital, but after his brother's death he came home and looked out for a seat in Parliament. He found it with no great trouble and has kept it ever since. No one would have the heart to turn him out, he is so good-looking. It's a great thing to be represented by one of the handsomest men in England, it creates such a favorable association of ideas. Any one would be amazed to discover that the borough he sits for, and the name of which I am always forgetting, is not a very pretty place. I have never seen it, and have no idea that it is isn't, and I am sure he will survive every revolution. The people must feel that if they shouldn't keep him some monster would be returned. You remember his appearance, how tall, and fair, and strong he is, and always laughing, yet without looking silly. He is exactly the young man girls in America figure to themselves, in the place of the hero, when they read English novels, and wish to imagine something very aristocratic and Saxon. A bright Bostonian, who met him once at my house, exclaimed as soon as he had gone out of the room, At last, at last, I behold it, the mustache of Roland Tremaine. Of Roland Tremaine. Don't you remember in a lawless love, how often it's mentioned, and how glorious and golden it was. Well, I have never seen it till now, but now I have seen it. If you hadn't seen Ambrose Tester, the best description I could give of him would be to say that he looked like Roland Tremaine. I don't know whether that hero was a strong liberal, but this is what Sir Ambrose is supposed to be. He succeeded his father two years ago, but I shall come to that. He is not exactly what I should call thoughtful, but he is interested or thinks he is, in a lot of things that I don't understand, and that one sees and skips in the newspapers, volunteering, and redistribution, and sanitation, and the representation of minors, minorities, what is it? When I said just now that he is always laughing, I ought to have explained that I did and mean when he is talking to Lady Vandela. She makes him serious, makes him almost solemn, by which I don't mean that she bores him. Far from it but when he is in her company he is thoughtful, he pulls his golden mustache, and Roland Tremaine looks as if his vision were turned in, and he were meditating on her words. He doesn't say much himself, 
It is she. She used to be so silent. Who does the talking? She has plenty to say to him. She describes to him the charms that she discovers in the path of duty. He seldom speaks in the house, I believe, but when he does it's offhand, and amusing, and sensible, and every one likes it. He will never be a great statesman, but he will add to the softness of Dorsetshire and remain, in short, a very gallant, pleasant, prosperous, typical English gentleman, with a name, a fortune, a perfect appearance, a devoted, bewildered little wife, a great many reminiscences, a great many friends, including Lady Vandela and myself, and strange to say, with all these advantages, something that faintly resembles a conscience. 2. Five years ago he told me his father insisted on his marrying, would not hear of his putting it off any longer. Sir Edmund had been harping on this string ever since he came back from Germany, had made it both a general and a particular request, not only urging him to matrimony in the abstract, but pushing him into the arms of every young woman in the country. Ambrose had promised, procrastinated, temporized, but at last he was at the end of his evasions, and his poor father had taken the tone of supplication. He thinks immensely of the name, of the place and all that, and he has got it into his head that if I don't marry before he dies, I won't marry after. So much I remember Ambrose Tester said to me. It's a fixed idea. He has got it on the brain. He wants to see me married with his eyes, and he wants to take his grandson in his arms. Not without that will he be satisfied that the whole thing will go straight. He thinks he is nearing his end, but he isn't. He will live to see a hundred, don't you think so? And he has made me a solemn appeal to put an end to what he calls his suspense. He has an idea someone will get hold of me. Some woman I can't marry. As if I were not old enough to take care of myself. Perhaps he is afraid of me. I suggested, facetiously. No, it isn't you, said my visitor, betraying by his tone that it was someone, though he didn't say whom. That's all rot, of course. One marries sooner or later, and I shall do like everyone else. If I marry before I die, it's as good as if I marry before he dies, isn't it? I should be delighted to have the governor at my wedding, but it is unnecessary for the legality, is it? I asked him what he wished me to do, and how I could help him. He knew already my peculiar views, that I was trying to get husbands for all the girls of my acquaintance, and to prevent the men from taking wives. The sight of an unmarried woman afflicted me, and yet when my male friends changed their state I took it as a personal offense. He let me know that so far as he was concerned I must prepare myself for this injury, for he had given his father his word that another twelve months should not see him a bachelor. The old man had given him carte blanche. He made no condition beyond exacting that the lady should have youth and health. Ambrose Tester, at any rate, had taken a vow and now he was going seriously to look about him. I said to him that what must be must be, and that there were plenty of charming girls about the land among whom he could suit himself easily enough. There was no better match in England, I said, and he would only have to make his choice. That, however, is not what I thought, for my real reflections were summed up in the silent exclamation. What a pity Lady Vandela isn't a widow! I hadn't the smallest doubt that if she were he would marry her on the spot, and after he had gone I wondered considerably what she thought of this turn in his affairs. If it was disappointing to me— how little it must be to her taste. Sir Edmund had not been so much out of the way in fearing there might be obstacles to his son's taking the step he desired. 
Margaret Vandela was an obstacle. I knew it as well as if Mr. Tester had told me. I don't mean there was anything in their relation he might not freely have alluded to, for Lady Vandela, in spite of her beauty and her tiresome husband, was not a woman who could be accused of an indiscretion. Her husband was a pedant about trifles, the shape of his hat-brim, the pose of his coachman, and cared for nothing else. But she was as nearly a saint as one may be when one has rubbed shoulders for ten years with the best society in Europe. It is a characteristic of that society that even its saints are suspected, and I go too far in saying that little pinpricks were not administered, in considerable numbers to her reputation. But she did and feel them, for still more than Ambrose Tester she was a person to whose happiness a good conscience was necessary. I should almost say that for her happiness it was sufficient, and, at any rate, it was only those who didn't know her that pretended to speak of her lightly. If one had the honor of her acquaintance one might have thought her rather shut up to her beauty and her grandeur, but one couldn't but feel there was something in her composition that would keep her from vulgar aberrations. Her husband was such a feeble type that she must have felt doubly she had been put upon her honor. To deceive such a man as that was to make him more ridiculous than he was already, and from such a result a woman bearing his name may very well have shrunk. Perhaps it would have been worse for Lord Vandela who had every pretension of his order and none of its amiability, if he had been a better, or at least, a clever man. When a woman behaves so well she is not obliged to be careful, and there is no need of consulting appearances when one is one's self in appearance. Lady Vandela accepted Ambrose Tester's attentions, and heaven knows they were frequent, but she had such an air of perfect equilibrium that one couldn't see her, in imagination, bend responsive. Incense was incense but one saw her sitting quite serene among the fumes. That honor of her acquaintance of which I just now spoke it had been given me to enjoy, that is to say, I met her a dozen times in the season in a hot crowd, and we smiled sweetly and murmured a vague question or two, without hearing, or even trying to hear, each other's answer. If I knew that Ambrose Tester was perpetually in and out of her house and always arranging with her that they should go to the same places, I doubt whether she, on her side, knew how often he came to see me. I don't think he would have let her know, and am conscious, in saying this, that it indicated an advanced state of intimacy, with her, I mean. I also doubt very much whether he asked her to look about, on his behalf, for a future lady tester. This request he was so good as to make of me, but I told him I would have nothing to do with the matter. If Jocelyn is unhappy, I am thankful to say the responsibility is not mine. I have found English husbands for two or three American girls, but providing English wives is a different affair. I know the sort of men that will suit women, but one would have to be very clever to know the sort of women that will suit men. I told Ambrose Tester that he must look out for himself, but, in spite of his promise, I had very little belief that he would do anything of the sort. I thought it probable that the old baronet would pass away without seeing a new generation come in though when I intimated as much to Mr. Tester, he made answer in substance, it was not quite so crudely said that his father, old as he was, would hold on till his bidding was done, and if it should not be done, he would hold on out of spite. Oh, he will tire me out! That I remember Ambrose Tester did say. I had done him injustice, for six months later he told me he was engaged. It had all come about very suddenly. From one day to the other the right young woman had been found. 
I forget who had found her, some aunt or cousin, I think, it had not been the young man himself. But when she was found, he rose to the occasion, he took her up seriously, he approved of her thoroughly, and I am not sure that he didn't fall a little in love with her, ridiculous, excuse my London tone, as this accident may appear. He told me that his father was delighted, and I knew afterwards that he had good reason to be. It was not till some weeks later that I saw the girl, but meanwhile I had received the pleasantest impression of her, and this impression came, must have come, mainly from what her intended told me. That proves that he spoke with some positiveness, spoke as if he really believed he was doing a good thing. I had it on my tongue's end to ask him how Lady Vandela liked her, but I fortunately checked this vulgar inquiry. He liked her evidently, as I say, everyone liked her, and when I knew her I liked her better even than the others. I like her today more than ever, it is fair you should know that, in reading this account of her situation. It doubtless colors my picture, gives a point to my sense of the strangeness of my little story. Jocelyn Bernardstone came of a military race, and had been brought up in camps, by which I don't mean she was one of those objectionable young women who are known as garrison hacks. She was in the flower of her freshness, and had been kept in the tent, receiving, as an only daughter, the most, particular, education from the excellent Lady Emily. General Bernardstone married a daughter of Lord Clandifley, who looks like a pink-faced rabbit, and is, after Jocelyn, one of the nicest women I know. When I met them in a country house, a few weeks after the marriage was arranged, as they say here, Jocelyn won my affections by saying to me, with her timid directness, the speech made me feel sixty years old, that she must thank me for having been so kind to Mr. Tester. You saw her at Doubleton, and you will remember that though she has no regular beauty, many a prettier woman would be very glad to look like her. She is as fresh as a new-laid egg, as light as a feather, as strong as a male phaeton. She is perfectly mild, yet she is clever enough to be sharp if she would. I don't know that clever women are necessarily thought ill-natured, but it is usually taken for granted that amiable women are very limited. Lady Tester is a refutation of the theory, which must have been invented by a vixenish woman who was not clever. She has an adoration for her husband, which absorbs her without in the least making her silly, unless indeed it is silly to be modest, as in this brutal world I sometimes believe. Her modesty is so great that being unhappy has hitherto presented itself to her as a form of egotism, that egotism which she has too much delicacy to cultivate. She is by no means sure that if being married to her beautiful baronet is not the ideal state she dreamed it, the weak point of the affair is not simply in her own presumption. It does end express her condition, at present, to say that she is unhappy or disappointed, or that she has a sense of injury. All this is latent. Meanwhile, what is obvious is that she is bewildered, she simply doesn't understand, and her perplexity, to me, is unspeakably touching. She looks about her for some explanation, some light. She fixes her eyes on mine sometimes, and on those of other people, with a kind of searching dumbness, as if there were some chance that I, that they, may explain, may tell her what it is that has happened to her. I can explain very well, but not to her, only to you. 3. It was a brilliant match for Miss Bernardstone, who had no fortune at all and all her friends were of the opinion that she had done very well after Easter she was in London with her people, and I saw a good deal of them, in fact, 
I rather cultivated them. They might perhaps even have thought me a little patronizing, if they had been given to thinking that sort of thing. But they were not, that is not in their line. English people are very apt to attribute motives, some of them attribute much worse ones than we poor simpletons in America recognize, than we have even heard of. But that is only some of them, others don't, but take everything literally and genially. That was the case with the Bernardstons. You could be sure that on their way home, after dining with you, they would end ask each other how in the world anyone could call you pretty, or say that many people did believe, all the same, that you had poisoned your grandfather. Lady Emily was exceedingly gratified at her daughter's engagement. Of course she was very quiet about it, she did and clap her hands or drag in Mr. Tester's name, but it was easy to see that she felt a kind of maternal peace and abiding satisfaction. The young man behaved as well as possible, was constantly seen with Jocelyn, and smiled down at her in the kindest, most protecting way. They looked beautiful together. You would have said it was a duty for people whose color matched so well to marry. Of course he was immensely taken up, and didn't come very often to see me. But he came sometimes, and when he sat there he had a look which I didn't understand at first. Presently I saw what it expressed. In my drawing room he was off duty. He had no longer to sit up and play a part. He would lean back and rest and draw a long breath, and forget that the day of his execution was fixed. There was to be no indecent haste about the marriage. It was not to take place till after the session. At the end of August it puzzled me and rather distressed me. That his heart shouldn't be a little more in the matter. It seemed strange to be engaged to so charming a girl and yet go through with it as if it were simply a social duty. If one hadn't been in love with her at first, one ought to have been at the end of a week or two. If Ambrose Tester was not, and to me he did and pretend to be, he carried it off, as I have said, better than I should have expected. He was a gentleman, and he behaved like a gentleman, with the added punctilio, I think, of being sorry for his betrothed. But it was difficult to see what, in the long run, he could expect to make of such a position. If a man marries an ugly, unattractive woman for reasons of state, the thing is comparatively simple. It is understood between them, and he need have no remorse at not offering her a sentiment of which there has been no question. But when he picks out a charming creature to gratify his father and less convenances, it is not so easy to be happy in not being able to care for her. It seemed to me that it would have been much better for Ambrose Tester to bestow himself upon a girl who might have given him an excuse for tepidity. His wife should have been healthy but stupid, prolific but morose. Did he expect to continue not to be in love with Jocelyn, or to conceal from her the mechanical nature of his attentions? It was difficult to see how he could wish to do the one or succeed in doing the other. Did he expect such a girl as that would be happy if he did and love her? And did he think himself capable of being happy if it should turn out that she was miserable? If she shouldn't be miserable, that is, if she should be indifferent, and, as they say, console herself, would he like that any better? I asked myself all these questions and I should have liked to ask them of Mr. Tester, but I didn't, for after all he couldn't have answered them. Poor young man! He didn't pry into things as I do. He was not analytic, like us Americans, as they say in reviews. He thought he was behaving remarkably well, and so he was, for a man, that was the strange part of it. It had been proper that in spite of his reluctance he should take a wife, and he had dutifully said about it. 
As a good thing is better for being well done, he had taken the best one he could possibly find. He was enchanted with, with his young lady, you might ask? Not in the least, with himself, that is the sort of person a man is. Their virtues are more dangerous than their vices, and heaven preserve you when they want to keep a promise. It is never a promise to you, you will notice. A man will sacrifice a woman to live as a gentleman should, and then ask for your sympathy, for him. And I don't speak of the bad ones, but of the good. They, after all, are the worst Ambrose Tester, as I say, didn't go into these details, but synthetic as he might be, was conscious that his position was false. He felt that sooner or later, and rather sooner than later, he would have to make it true, a process that couldn't possibly be agreeable. He would really have to make up his mind to care for his wife or not to care for her. What would Lady Vandala say to one alternative? and what would little Jocelyn say to the other? That is what it was to have a pertinacious father, and to be an accommodating son. With me, it was easy for Ambrose Tester to be superficial, for, as I tell you, if I didn't wish to engage him, I didn't wish to disengage him, and I didn't insist Lady Vandela insisted, I was afraid. To be with her was of course very complicated, even more than Miss Bernardstone she must have made him feel that his position was false. I must add that he once mentioned to me that she had told him he ought to marry. At any rate, it is an immense thing to be a pleasant fellow. Our young fellow was so universally pleasant that of course his fiancée came in for her share. So did Lady Emily, suffused with hope, which made her pinker than ever. She told me he sent flowers even to her. One day in the park, I was riding early. The row was almost empty. I came up behind a lady and gentleman who were walking their horses, close to each other, side by side in a moment I recognized her, but not before seeing that nothing could have been more benevolent than the way Ambrose Tester was bending over his future wife. If he struck me as a lover at that moment, of course he struck her so. But that isn't the way they ride today. 4. One day, about the end of June, he came in to see me when I had two or three other visitors. You know that even at that season I am almost always at home from six to seven. He had not been three minutes in the room before I saw that he was different, different from what he had been the last time, and I guessed that something had happened in relation to his marriage. My visitors didn't, unfortunately, and they stayed and stayed until I was afraid he would have to go away without telling me what, I was sure, he had come for. But he sat them out. I think that by exception they didn't find him pleasant. After we were alone he abused them a little, and then he said, Have you heard about Vandela? He is very ill. She's awfully anxious. I hadn't heard, and I told him so, asking a question or two, then my inquiries ceased, my breath almost failed me, for I had become aware of something very strange. The way he looked at me when he told me his news was a full confession, a confession so full that I had needed a moment to take it in. He was not too strong a man to be taken by surprise, not so strong but that in the presence of an unexpected occasion his first movement was to look about for a little help. I venture to call it help, the sort of thing he came to me for on that summer afternoon. It is always help when a woman who is not an idiot lets an embarrassed man take up her time. If he too is not an idiot, that doesn't diminish the service. On the contrary his superiority to the average helps him to profit. Ambrose Tester had said to me more than once, in the past, that he was capable of telling me things, 
because I was an American, that he wouldn't confide to his own people. He had proved it before this, as I have hinted, and I must say that being an American, with him, was sometimes a questionable honor. I don't know whether he thinks us more discreet and more sympathetic, if he keeps up the system, he has abandoned it with me, or only more insensible, more proof against shocks. But it is certain that, like some other Englishmen I have known, he has appeared, in delicate cases, to think I would take a comprehensive view. When I have inquired into the grounds of this discrimination in our favor, he has contented himself with saying, in the British cursory manner, Oh, I don't know, you are different. I remember he remarked once that our impressions were fresher. And I am sure that now it was because of my nationality, in addition to other merits, that he treated me to the confession I have just alluded to. At least I don't suppose he would have gone about saying to people in general, Her husband will probably die, you know, then why shouldn't I marry Lady Vandela? That was the question which his whole expression and manner asked of me, and of which, after a moment, I decided to take no notice. Why shouldn't he? There was an excellent reason why he should end it would just kill Jocelyn Bernardstone. That was why he should end. The idea that he should be ready to do it frightened me, and independent as he might think my point of view, I had no desire to discuss such abominations. It struck me as an abomination at this very first moment, and I have never wavered in my judgment of it. I am always glad when I can take the measure of a thing as soon as I see it. It is a blessing to feel what we think, without balancing and comparing. It's a great rest, too, and a great luxury. That, as I say, was the case with the feeling excited in me by this happy idea of Ambrose Tester's. Cruel and wanton I thought it then, cruel and wanton I thought it later, when it was pressed upon me. I knew there were many other people that didn't agree with me, and I can only hope for them that their conviction was as quick and positive as mine. It all depends upon the way a thing strikes one. But I will add to this another remark. I thought I was right then, and I still think I was right. But it strikes me as a pity that I should have wished so much to be right why couldn't I be content to be wrong, to renounce my influence, since I appeared to possess the mystic article, and let my young friend do as he liked? As you observe the situation at Doubleton, shouldn't you say it was of a nature to make one wonder whether, after all, one did render a service to the younger lady? At all events, as I say, I gave no sign to Ambrose Tester that I understood him, that I guessed what he wished to come to. He got no satisfaction out of me that day. It is very true that he made up for it later. I expressed regret at Lord Vandela's illness, inquired into its nature and origin, hoped it would end prove as grave as might be feared, said I would call at the house and ask about him, commiserated discreetly her ladyship, and in short gave my young man no chance whatever. He knew that I had guessed his arrière-pensée, but he let me off for the moment, for which I was thankful, either because he was still ashamed of it, or because he supposed I was reserving myself for the catastrophe, should it occur. Well, my dear, it did occur, at the end of ten days. Mr. Tester came to see me twice in that interval, each time to tell me that poor Vandela was worse, he had some internal inflammation which, in nine cases out of ten, is fatal. His wife was all devotion. She was with him night and day. I had the news from other sources as well. I leave you to imagine whether in London, at the height of the season, such a situation could fail to be considerably discussed. To the discussion as yet, however, I contributed little, and with Ambrose Tester nothing at all.
I was still on my guard. I never admitted for a moment that it was possible there should be any change in his plans. By this time, I think, he had quite ceased to be ashamed of his idea. He was in a state almost of exaltation about it. But he was very angry with me for not giving him an opening. As I look back upon the matter now, there is something almost amusing in the way we watched each other, he thinking that I evaded his question only to torment him. He believed me, or pretended to believe me, capable of this sort of perversity, and I determined not to lose ground by betraying an insight into his state of mind which he might twist into an expression of sympathy. I wished to leave my sympathy where I had placed it, with Lady Emily and her daughter, of whom I continued, bumping against them at parties, to have some observation. They gave no signal of alarm. Of course it would have been premature. The girl, I am sure, had no idea of the existence of a rival. How they had kept her in the dark I don't know, but it was easy to see she was too much in love to suspect or to criticize. With Lady Emily it was different. She was a woman of charity, but she touched the world at too many points not to feel its vibrations. However, the dear little woman planted herself firmly. To the eye she was still enough. It was not from Ambrose Tester that I first heard of Lord Vandela's death. It was announced, with a quarter of a column of padding, in the Times. I have always known the Times was a wonderful journal, but this never came home to me so much as when it produced a quarter of a column about Lord Vandela. It was a triumph of word spinning. If he had carried out his vocation, if he had been a tailor or a hatter, that's how I see him, there might have been something to say about him. But he missed his vocation, he missed everything but posthumous honors. I was so sure Ambrose Tester would come in that afternoon, and so sure he knew I should expect him, that I threw over an engagement on purpose. But he didn't come in, nor the next day, nor the next. There were two possible explanations of his absence. One was that he was giving all his time to consoling Lady Vandela. The other was that he was giving it all, as a blind, to Jocelyn Bernardstone. Both proved incorrect, for when he at last turned up he told me he had been for a week in the country, at his father's. Sir Edmund also had been unwell, but he had pulled through better than poor Lord Vandela. I wondered at first whether his son had been talking over with him the question of a change of base, but guessed in a moment that he had not suffered this alarm. I don't think that Ambrose would have spared him if he had thought it necessary to give him warning, but he probably held that his father would have no ground for complaint so long as he should marry someone, would have no right to remonstrate if he simply transferred his contract. Lady Vandela had had two children, whom she had lost, and might therefore have others whom she should end lose, that would have been a reply to nice discriminations on Sir Edmund's part. V. In reality, what the young man had been doing was thinking it over beneath his ancestral oaks and beeches. His countenance showed this, showed it more than Miss Bernardstone could have liked. He looked like a man who was crossed, not like a man who was happy in love. I was no more disposed than before to help him out with his plot but at the end of ten minutes we were articulately discussing it. When I say we were, I mean he was, for I sat before him quite mute, at first, and amazed at the clearness with which, before his conscience, he had argued his case. He had persuaded himself that it was quite a simple matter to throw over poor Jocelyn and keep himself free for the expiration of Lady Vandela's term of mourning. The deliberations of an impulsive man sometimes land him in strange countries. 
Ambrose Tester confided his plan to me as a tremendous secret. He professed to wish immensely to know how it appeared to me, and whether my woman's wit couldn't discover for him some loophole big enough round, some honorable way of not keeping faith. Yet at the same time he seemed not to foresee that I should, of necessity, be simply horrified. Disconcerted and perplexed, a little, that he was prepared to find me, but if I had refused, as yet, to come to his assistance, he appeared to suppose it was only because of the real difficulty of suggesting to him that perfect pretext of which he was in want. He evidently counted upon me, however, for some illuminating proposal, and I think he would have liked to say to me, You have always pretended to be a great friend of mine. I hadn't. The pretension was all on his side. And now is your chance to show it. Go to Jocelyne and make her feel, women have a hundred ways of doing that sort of thing, that through Vandela's death the change in my situation is complete. If she is the girl I take her for, she will know what to do in the premises. I was not prepared to oblige him to this degree, and I lost no time in telling him so, after my first surprise at seeing how definite his purpose had become. His contention, after all, was very simple. He had been in love with Lady Vandela for years, and was now more in love with her than ever. There had been no appearance of her being, within a calculable period, liberated by the death of her husband. This nobleman was, he didn't say what just then, it was too soon, but he was only forty years old, and in such health and preservation as to make such a contingency infinitely remote. Under these circumstances, Ambrose had been driven, for the most worldly reasons, he was ashamed of them, pa, into an engagement with a girl he didn't love and didn't pretend to love. Suddenly the unexpected occurred. The woman he did love had become accessible to him, and all the relations of things were altered. Why shouldn't he alter, too? Why shouldn't Miss Bernardstone alter, Lady Emily alter, and every one alter? It would be wrong in him to marry Jocelyn in so changed a world. A moment's consideration would certainly assure me of that. He could no longer carry out his part of the bargain, and the transaction must stop before it went any further. If Jocelyn knew, she would be the first to recognize this, and the thing for her now was to know. Go and tell her then, if you are so sure of it. I said. I wonder you have put it off so many days. He looked at me with a melancholy eye. Of course I know it's beastly awkward. It was beastly awkward certainly. There I could quite agree with him and this was the only sympathy he extracted from me. It was impossible to be less helpful, less merciful, to an embarrassed young man than I was on that occasion. But other occasions followed very quickly, on which Mr. Tester renewed his appeal with greater eloquence. He assured me that it was torture to be with his intended, and every hour that he did and break off committed him more deeply and more fatally. I repeated only once my previous question— asked him only once why then he didn't tell her he had changed his mind. The inquiry was idle, was even unkind, for my young man was in a very tight place. He didn't tell her, simply because he couldn't, in spite of the anguish of feeling that his chance to right himself was rapidly passing away. When I asked him if Jocelyn appeared to have guessed nothing, he broke out. How in the world can she guess, when I am so kind to her? I am so sorry for her, poor little wretch that I can't help being nice to her. And from the moment I am nice to her she thinks it's all right. I could see perfectly what he meant by that, 
and I liked him more for this little generosity than I disliked him for his nefarious scheme. In fact, I didn't dislike him at all when I saw what an influence my judgment would have on him. I very soon gave him the full benefit of it. I had thought over his case with all the advantages of his own presentation of it, and it was impossible for me to see how he could decently get rid of the girl. That, as I have said, had been my original opinion, and quickened reflection only confirmed it. As I have also said, I had not in the least recommended him to become engaged but once he had done so I recommended him to abide by it. It was all very well being in love with Lady Vandela. He might be in love with her, but he had not promised to marry her. It was all very well not being in love with Miss Bernardstone, but, as it happened, he had promised to marry her, and in my country a gentleman was supposed to keep such promises. If it was a question of keeping them only so long as was convenient, where would any of us be? I assure you I became very eloquent and moral, yes, moral, I maintain the word, in spite of your perhaps thinking, as you are very capable of doing, that I ought to have advised him in just the opposite sense. It was not a question of love, but of marriage, for he had never promised to love poor Jocelyne. It was useless his saying it was dreadful to marry without love, he knew that he thought it, and the people he lived with thought it, nothing of the kind. Half his friends had married on those terms. Yes, and a pretty sight their private life presented. That might be, but it was the first time I had ever heard him say it. A fortnight before he had been quite ready to do like the others. I knew what I thought, and I suppose I expressed it with some clearness, for my arguments made him still more uncomfortable, unable as he was either to accept them or to act in contempt of them. Why he should have cared so much for my opinion is a mystery I can't elucidate. To understand my little story, you must simply swallow it. That he did care is proved by the exasperation with which he suddenly broke out. Well then, as I understand you, what you recommend me is to marry Miss Bernard Stone and carry on an intrigue with Lady Vandela. He knew perfectly that I recommended nothing of the sort, and he must have been very angry to indulge in this balade. He told me that other people did and think as I did, that every one was of the opinion that between a woman he did and love and a woman he had adored for years it was a plain moral duty not to hesitate. Don't hesitate then, I exclaimed, but I didn't get rid of him with this, for he returned to the charge more than once, he came to me so often that I thought he must neglect both his other alternatives, and let me know again that the voice of society was quite against my view. You will doubtless be surprised at such an intimation that he had taken, society, into his confidence, and wonder whether he went about asking people whether they thought he might back out. I can't tell you exactly, but I know that for some weeks his dilemma was a great deal talked about. His friends perceived he was at the parting of the roads, and many of them had no difficulty in saying which one they would take. Some observers thought he ought to do nothing, to leave things as they were. Others took very high ground and discoursed upon the sanctity of love and the wickedness of really deceiving the girl, as that would be what it would amount to, if he should lead her to the altar. Some held that it was too late to escape, others maintained that it is never too late. Some thought Miss Bernardstone very much to be pitied, some reserved their compassion for Ambrose Tester, others still lavished it upon Lady Vandela. The prevailing opinion, I think, was that he ought to obey the promptings of his heart. London cares so much for the heart. Or is it that London is simply ferocious, 
and always prefers the spectacle that is more entertaining? As it would prolong the drama for the young man to throw over Miss Bernardstone, there was a considerable readiness to see the poor girl sacrificed. She was like a Christian maiden in the Roman arena. That is what Ambrose Tester meant by telling me that public opinion was on his side. I don't think he chattered about his quandary, but people, knowing his situation, guessed what was going on in his mind, and he on his side guessed what they said. London discussions might as well go on in the whispering gallery of S.T. Paul's. I could of course do only one thing, I could but reaffirm my conviction that the Roman attitude, as I may call it, was cruel, was falsely sentimental. This naturally did and help him as he wished to be helped, did and remove the obstacle to his marrying in a year or two Lady Vandela. Yet he continued to look to me for inspiration, I must say it at the cost of making him appear a very feeble-minded gentleman. There was a moment when I thought him capable of an oblique movement, of temporizing with a view to escape. If he succeeded in postponing his marriage long enough, the Bernardstons would throw him over, and I suspect that for a day he entertained the idea of fixing this responsibility on them. But he was too honest and too generous to do so for longer, and his destiny was staring him in the face when an accident gave him a momentary relief. General Bernardstone died. After an illness as sudden and short as that which had carried off Lord Vandela, his wife and daughter were plunged into mourning and immediately retired into the country. A week later we heard that the girl's marriage would be put off for several months, partly on account of her mourning, and partly because her mother, whose only companion she had now become, could not bear to part with her at the time originally fixed and actually so near. People of course looked at each other, said it was the beginning of the end, a dodge, of Ambrose Testers. I wonder they didn't accuse him of poisoning the poor old general. I know to a certainty that he had nothing to do with the delay, that the proposal came from Lady Emily, who, in her bereavement, wished, very naturally, to keep a few months longer the child she was going to lose forever. It must be said, in justice to her prospective son-in-law, that he was capable either of resigning himself or of frankly, with however many blushes, telling Jocelyn he couldn't keep his agreement, but was not capable of trying to wriggle out of his difficulty. The plan of simply telling Jocelyn he couldn't, this was the one he had fixed upon as the best, and this was the one of which I remarked to him, that it had a defect which should be counted against its advantages. The defect was that it would kill Jocelyn on the spot. I think he believed me, and his believing me made this unexpected respite very welcome to him. There was no knowing what might happen in the interval, and he passed a large part of it in looking for an issue. And yet, at the same time, he kept up the usual forms with the girl whom in his heart he had renounced. I was told more than once, for I had lost sight of the pair during the summer and autumn, that these forms were at times very casual, that he neglected Miss Bernardstone most flagrantly, and had quite resumed his old intimacy with Lady Vandela. I don't exactly know what was meant by this for she spent the first three months of her widowhood in complete seclusion, in her own old house in Norfolk, where he certainly was not staying with her. I believe he stayed some time, for the partridge shooting, at a place a few miles off. It came to my ears that if Miss Bernard Stone didn't take the hint it was because she was determined to stick to him through thick and thin. She never offered to let him off, and I was sure she never would, but I was equally sure that, strange as it may appear, he had not ceased to be nice to her. I have never exactly understood why he didn't hate her, 
and I am convinced that he was not a comedian in his conduct to her, he was only a good fellow. I have spoken of the satisfaction that Sir Edmund took in his daughter-in-law that was to be. He delighted in looking at her, longed for her when she was out of his sight, and had her, with her mother, staying with him in the country for weeks together. If Ambrose was not so constantly at her side as he might have been, this deficiency was covered by his father's devotion to her, by her appearance of being already one of the family. Mr. Tester was away as he might be away if they were already married. 6. In October I met him at Doubleton. We spent three days there together. He was enjoying his respite, as he didn't scruple to tell me, and he talked to me a great deal, as usual, about Lady Vandela. He didn't mention Jocelyn's name, except by implication in this assurance of how much he valued his weeks of grace. Do you mean to say that, under the circumstances, Lady Vandela is willing to marry you? I made this inquiry more expressively, doubtless, than before. For when we had talked of the matter then he had naturally spoken of her consent as a simple contingency. It was contingent upon the lapse of the first months of her bereavement. It was not a question he could begin to press a few days after her husband's death. Not immediately, of course, but if I wait, I think so. That, I remember, was his answer. If you wait till you get rid of that poor girl, of course. She knows nothing about that. It's none of her business. Do you mean to say she does and know you are engaged? How should she know it? How should she believe it? When she sees how I love her, the young man exclaimed. But he admitted afterwards that he had not deceived her, and that she rendered full justice to the motives that had determined him. He thought he could answer for it that she would marry him some day or other. Then she is a very cruel woman, I said, and I should like, if you please, to hear no more about her. He protested against this and a month later brought her up again for a purpose. The purpose, you will see, was a very strange one indeed. I had then come back to town. It was the early part of December. I supposed he was hunting, with his own hounds. But he appeared one afternoon in my drawing-room and told me I should do him a great favor if I would go and see Lady Vandela. Go and see her? What do you mean, in Norfolk? She has come up to London. Didn't you know it? She has a lot of business. She will be kept here till Christmas. I wish you would go. Why should I go? I asked. Won't you be kept here till Christmas too, and isn't that company enough for her? Upon my word, you are cruel, he said, and it's a great shame of you when a man is trying to do his duty and is behaving like a saint. Is that what you call saintly, spending all your time with Lady Vandela? I will tell you whom I think a saint if you would like to know. You need and tell me. I know it better than you. I haven't a word to say against her. Only she is stupid and hasn't any perceptions. If I am stopping a bit in London you don't understand why. It's as if you hadn't any perceptions either. If I am here for a few days I know what I am about. Why should I understand? I asked, not very candidly, because I should have been glad to. It's your own affair. You know what you are about, as you say and of course you have counted the cost. What cost do you mean? It's a pretty cost, I can tell you. And then he tried to explain, if I would only enter into it, and not be so suspicious. He was in London for the express purpose of breaking off. Breaking off what, your engagement? No, no, damn my engagement, the other thing. My acquaintance, my relations. Your intimacy with Lady Van? 
It was not very gentle, but I believe I burst out laughing. If this is the way you break off, pray what would you do to keep up? He flushed and looked both foolish and angry, for of course it was not very difficult to see my point. But he was, in a very clumsy manner of his own, trying to cultivate a good conscience, and he was getting no credit for it. I suppose I may be allowed to look at her. It's a matter we have to talk over. One doesn't drop such a friend in half an hour. One doesn't drop her at all, unless one has the strength to make a sacrifice. It's easy for you to talk of sacrifice. You don't know what she is, my visitor cried. I think I know what she is not. She is not a friend, as you call her, if she encourages you in the wrong, if she doesn't help you. No, I have no patience with her, I declared. I don't like her, and I won't go to see her. Mr. Tester looked at me a moment, as if he were too vexed to trust himself to speak. He had to make an effort not to say something rude. That effort, however, he was capable of making, and though he held his hat as if he were going to walk out of the house, he ended by staying, by putting it down again, by leaning his head, with his elbows on his knees, in his hands, and groaning out that he had never heard of anything so impossible, and that he was the most wretched man in England. I was very sorry for him, and of course I told him so, but privately I did and think he stood up to his duty as he ought. I said to him, however, that if he would give me his word of honor that he would not abandon Miss Bernardstone, there was no trouble I wouldn't take to be of use to him. I did and think Lady Vandela was behaving well. He must allow me to repeat that, but if going to see her would give him any pleasure, of course there was no question of pleasure for her, I would go fifty times. I couldn't imagine how it would help him, but I would do it as I would do anything else he asked me. He didn't give me his word of honor, but he said quietly, I shall go straight, you needn't be afraid. And as he spoke there was honor enough in his face. This left an opening, of course, for another catastrophe. There might be further postponements, and poor Lady Emily, indignant for the first time in her life, might declare that her daughter's situation had become intolerable and that they withdrew from the engagement. But this was too odious a chance, and I accepted Mr. Tester's assurance. He told me that the good I could do by going to see Lady Vandela was that it would cheer her up, in that dreary, big house in Upper Brook Street, where she was absolutely alone, with horrible overalls on the furniture, and newspapers, actually newspapers, on the mirrors. She was seeing no one, there was no one to see, but he knew she would see me. I asked him if she knew, then, he was to speak to me of coming, and whether I might allude to him, whether it was not too delicate. I shall never forget his answer to this, nor the tone in which he made it, blushing a little, and looking away. Allude to me? Rather, it was not the most fatuous speech I had ever heard. It had the effect of being the most modest, and it gave me an odd idea, and especially a new one, of the condition in which, at any time, one might be destined to find Lady Vandela. If she, too, were engaged in a struggle with her conscience, in this light they were an edifying pair, it had perhaps changed her considerably, made her more approachable, and I reflected, ingeniously, that it probably had a humanizing effect upon her. Ambrose Tester did and go away after I had told him that I would comply with his request. He lingered, fidgeting with his stick and gloves, and I perceived that he had more to tell me, and that the real reason why he wished me to go 
and see Lady Vandela was not that she had newspapers on her mirrors. He came out with it at last for that. Rather, of his, with the way I took it, had broken the ice. You say you don't think she behaved well. He naturally wished to defend her. But I dare say you don't understand her position. Perhaps you wouldn't behave any better in her place. It's very good of you to imagine me there, I remarked laughing. It's awkward for me to say. One doesn't want to dot one's eyes to that extent. She would be delighted to marry you. That's not such a mystery. Well, she likes me awfully, Mr. Tester said, looking like a handsome child. It's not all on one side, it's on both. That's the difficulty. You mean she won't let you go, she holds you fast? But the poor fellow had, in delicacy, said enough, and at this he jumped up. He stood there a moment, smoothing his hat, then he broke out again. Please do this. Let her know, make her feel. You can bring it in, you know. And here he paused, embarrassed. What can I bring in, Mr. Tester? That's the difficulty, as you say. What you told me the other day. You know. What you have told me before. What I have told you. That it would put an end to Jocelyn. If you can't work round to it, what's the good of being, you? And with this tribute to my powers he took his departure. 7. It was all very well of him to be so flattering, but I really did and see myself talking in that manner to Lady Vandela. I wondered why he didn't give her this information himself, and what particular value it could have as coming from me. Then I said to myself that of course he had mentioned to her the truth I had impressed upon him, and which by this time he had evidently taken home, but that to enable it to produce its full effect upon Lady Yandler the further testimony of a witness more independent was required. There was nothing for me but to go and see her, and I went the next day, fully conscious that to execute Mr. Tester's commission I should have either to find myself very brave or to find her strangely confidential, and fully prepared, also, not to be admitted. But she received me, and the house in Upper Brook Street was as dismal as Ambrose Tester had represented it. The December fog, the afternoon was very dusky, seemed to pervade the muffled rooms, and her ladyship's pink lamplight to waste itself in the brown atmosphere. He had mentioned to me that the heir to the title, a cousin of her husband, who had left her unmolested for several months, was now taking possession of everything, so that what kept her in town was the business of her turning out, and certain formalities connected with her dower. This was very ample, and the large provision made for her included the London house. She was very gracious on this occasion but she certainly had remarkably little to say. Still, she was different, or at any rate, having taken that hint, I saw her differently. I saw, indeed, that I had never quite done her justice, that I had exaggerated her stiffness, attributed to her a kind of conscious grandeur which was in reality much more an accident of her appearance, of her figure, than a quality of her character. Her appearance is as grand as you know, and on the day I speak of, in her simplified mourning, under those vaguely gleaming lambras, she looked as beautiful as a great white lily. She is very simple and good-natured. She will never make an advance, but she will always respond to one, and I saw, that evening, that the way to get on with her was to treat her as if she were not too imposing. I saw also that, with her numb-like robes and languid eyes, she was a woman who might be immensely in love. All the same, we hadn't much to say to each other. She remarked that it was very kind of me to come, 
that she wondered how I could endure London at that season, that she had taken a drive and found the park too dreadful, that she would ring for some more tea if I did and like what she had given me. Our conversation wandered, stumbling a little, among these platitudes, but no allusion was made on either side to Ambrose Tester. Nevertheless, as I have said, she was different, though it was not till I got home that I phrased to myself what I had detected. Then, recalling her white face, and the deeper, stranger expression of her beautiful eyes, I entertained myself with the idea that she was under the influence of suppressed exaltation. The more I thought of her the more she appeared to me not natural, wound up, as it were, to a calmness beneath which there was a deal of agitation. This would have been nonsense if I had not, two days afterwards, received a note from her which struck me as an absolutely exalted production. Not superficially, of course, to the casual eye it would have been perfectly commonplace. But this was precisely its peculiarity, that Lady Vandalus should have written me a note which had no apparent point save that she should like to see me again, a desire for which she did succeed in assigning a reason. She reminded me that she was paying no calls, and she hoped I wouldn't stand on ceremony, but come in very soon again, she had enjoyed my visit so much. We had not been on note-writing terms, and there was nothing in that visit to alter our relations. Moreover, six months before, she would not have dreamed of addressing me in that way. I was doubly convinced, therefore, that she was passing through a crisis, that she was not in her normal state of nerves. Mr. Tester had not reappeared since the occasion I have described at length, and I thought it possible he had been capable of the bravery of leaving town. I had, however, no fear of meeting him in Upper Brook Street, for, according to my theory of his relations with Lady Vaudelaire, he regularly spent his evenings with her, it being clear to me that they must dine together. I could answer her note only by going to see her the next day, when I found abundant confirmation of that idea about the crisis. I must confess to you in advance that I have never really understood her behavior, never understood why she should have taken me so suddenly, with whatever reserves, and however much by implication merely, into her confidence. All I can say is that this is an accident to which one is exposed with English people, who, in my opinion, and contrary to common report, are the most demonstrative, the most expansive, the most gushing in the world. I think she felt rather isolated at this moment, and she had never had many intimates of her own sex. That sex, as a general thing, disapproved of her proceedings during the last few months, held that she was making Jocelyn Bernard Stone suffer too cruelly. She possibly felt the weight of this censure, and at all events was not above wishing someone to know that whatever injury had fallen upon the girl to whom Mr. Tester had so stupidly engaged himself, had not, so far as she was concerned, been wantonly inflicted. I was there, I was more or less aware of her situation, and I would do as well as any one else. She seemed really glad to see me, but she was very nervous. Nevertheless, nearly half an hour elapsed, and I was still wondering whether she had sent for me only to discuss the question of how a London house whose appointments had the stamp of a debased period, it had been thought very handsome in 1850, could be, done up, without being made aesthetic. I forget what satisfaction I gave her on this point. I was asking myself how I could work round in the manner prescribed by Jocelyn's intended. At the last, however, to my extreme surprise, Lady Vandela herself relieved me of this effort. I think you know Mr. Tester rather well, she remarked, abruptly, irrelevantly, 
and with a face more conscious of the bearings of things than any I had ever seen her wear. On my confessing to such an acquaintance, she mentioned that Mr. Tester, who had been in London a few days, perhaps I had seen him, had left town and wouldn't come back for several weeks. This, for the moment, seemed to be all she had to communicate, but she sat looking at me from the corner of her sofa as if she wished me to profit in some way by the opportunity she had given me. Did she want help from outside, this proud, inscrutable woman, and was she reduced to throwing out signals of distress? Did she wish to be protected against herself, applauded for such efforts as she had already made? I didn't rush forward. I was not precipitate, for I felt that now, surely, I should be able at my convenience to execute my commission. What concerned me was not to prevent Lady Vandela's marrying Mr. Tester, but to prevent Mr. Tester's marrying her. In a few moments, with the same irrelevance, she announced to me that he wished to, and asked whether I didn't know it I saw that this was my chance, and instantly, with extreme energy, I exclaimed, Ah, for heaven's sake don't listen to him! It would kill Miss Bernard's tone! The tone of my voice made her color a little, and she repeated, Miss Bernard's tone? The girl he is engaged to, or has been, don't you know? Excuse me, I thought everyone knew. Of course I know he is dreadfully entangled. He was fairly hunted down. Lady Vandela was silent a moment, and then she added, with a strange smile. Fancy, in such a situation, his wanting to marry me. Fancy, I replied. I was so struck with the oddity of her telling me her secrets that for the moment my indignation did not come to a head. My indignation, I mean, at her accusing poor Lady Emily, and even the girl herself, of having trapped, our friend. Later I said to myself that I supposed she was within her literal right in abusing her rival, if she was trying sincerely to give him up. I don't know anything about his having been hunted down, I said, but this I do know, Lady Vandela, I assure you, that if he should throw Jocelyn over she would simply go out like that, and I snapped my fingers. Lady Vandela listened to this serenely enough. She tried at least to take the air of a woman who has no need of new arguments. Do you know her very well? She asked, as if she had been struck by my calling Miss Bernard Stone by her Christian name. Well enough to like her very much, I was going to say. To pity her. But I thought better of it. She must be a person of very little spirit. If a man were to jilt me, I don't think I should go out, cried her ladyship with a laugh. Nothing is more probable than that she has not your courage or your wisdom. She may be weak, but she is passionately in love with him. I looked straight into Lady Vandela's eyes as I said this, and I was conscious that it was a tolerably good description of my hostess. Do you think she would really die? She asked in a moment. Die as if one should stab her with a knife. Some people don't believe in broken hearts. I continued. I did until I knew Jocelyn Bernard Stone. Then I felt that she had one that would end be proof. One ought to live, one ought always to live, said Lady Yandler, and always to hold up one's head. Ah, uh, I suppose that one ought end to feel at all, if one wishes to be a great success. What do you call a great success? she asked. Never having occasion to be pitted. Being pitted? That must be odious, she said, and I saw that though she might wish for admiration, she would never wish for sympathy. Then, in a moment, she added that men, in her opinion, were very base, a remark that was deep, 
but not, I think, very honest, that is, in so far as the purpose of it had been to give me the idea that Ambrose Tester had done nothing but press her, and she had done nothing but resist. They were very odd, the discrepancies in the statements of each of this pair, but it must be said for Lady Vandela that now that she had made up her mind, as I believed she had, to sacrifice herself, she really persuaded herself that she had not had a moment of weakness. She quite unbosomed herself, and I fairly assisted at her crisis. It appears that she had a conscience, very much so, and even a high ideal of duty. She represented herself as moving heaven and earth to keep Ambrose Tester up to the mark, and you would never have guessed from what she told me that she had entertained ever so faintly the idea of marrying him. I am sure this was a dreadful perversion, but I forgave it on the score of that exaltation of which I have spoken. The things she said, and the way she said them, come back to me, and I thought that if she looked as handsome as that when she preached virtue to Mr. Tester, it was no wonder he liked the sermon to be going on perpetually. I dare say you know what old friends we are, but that doesn't make any difference, does it? Nothing would induce me to marry him. I haven't the smallest intention of marrying again. It is not a time for me to think of marrying, before his lordship has been dead six months. The girl is nothing to me, I know nothing about her, and I don't wish to know, but I should be very, very sorry if she were unhappy. He is the best friend I ever had, but I don't see that that's any reason I should marry him, do you? Lady Vaudelaire appealed to me, but without waiting for my answers, asking advice in spite of herself, and then remembering it was beneath her dignity to appear to be in need of it. I have told him that if he does and act properly I shall never speak to him again. She's a charming girl, everyone says, and I have no doubt she will make him perfectly happy. Men don't feel things like women, I think, and if they are coddled and flattered they forget the rest. I have no doubt she is very sufficient for all that. For me, at any rate, once I see a thing in a certain way, I must abide by that I think people are so dreadful, they do such horrible things. They don't seem to think what one's duty may be. I don't know whether you think much about that, but really one must at times, don't you think so? Everyone is so selfish, and then, when they have never made an effort or a sacrifice themselves, they come to you and talk such a lot of hypocrisy. I know so much better than anyone else whether I should marry or not. But I don't mind telling you that I don't see why I should. I am not in such a bad position, with my liberty and a decent maintenance. In this manner she rambled on, gravely and communicatively, contradicting herself at times, not talking fast, she never did, but dropping one simple sentence, with an interval, after the other, with a certain richness of voice which always was part of the charm of her presence. She wished to be convinced against herself, and it was a comfort to her to hear herself argue. I was quite willing to be part of the audience, though I had to confine myself to very superficial remarks for when I had said the event I feared would kill Miss Bernardstone I had said everything that was open to me. I had nothing to do with Lady Vandela's marrying, apart from that I probably disappointed her. She had caught a glimpse of the moral beauty of self-sacrifice, of a certain ideal of conduct, I imagine it was rather new to her, and would have been glad to elicit from me, as a person of some experience of life, an assurance that such joys are not insubstantial. I had no wish to wind her up to a spiritual ecstasy from which she would inevitably descend again, and I let her deliver herself according to her humor, without attempting to answer for it that she would find renunciation the road to bliss. 
I believe that if she should give up Mr. Tester she would suffer accordingly, but I did and think that a reason for not giving him up. Before I left her she said to me that nothing would induce her to do anything that she did and think right. It would be no pleasure to me, don't you see? I should be always thinking that another way would have been better. Nothing would induce me, nothing, nothing. 8. She protested too much, perhaps, but the event seemed to show that she was in earnest. I have described these two first visits of mine in some detail, but they were not the only ones I paid her. I saw her several times again, before she left town, and we became intimate, as London intimacies are measured. She ceased to protest, to my relief, for it made me nervous, she was very gentle, and gracious, and reasonable, and there was something in the way she looked and spoke that told me that for the present she found renunciation its own reward. So far, my skepticism was put to shame, her spiritual ecstasy maintained itself. If I could have foreseen then that it would maintain itself till the present hour I should have felt that Lady Vandela's moral nature is finer, indeed, than mine. I heard from her that Mr. Tester remained at his father's, and that Lady Emily and her daughter were also there. The day for the wedding had been fixed, and the preparations were going rapidly forward. Meanwhile, she didn't tell me, but I gathered it from things she dropped. She was in almost daily correspondence with the young man. I thought this a strange concomitant of his bridal arrangements, but apparently, henceforth, they were bent on convincing each other that the torch of virtue lighted their steps, and they couldn't convince each other too much. She intimated to me that she had now effectually persuaded him, always by letter, that he would fail terribly if he should try to found his happiness on an injury done to another, and that of course she could never be happy, in a union with him, with the sight of his wretchedness before her. That a good deal of correspondence should be required to elucidate this is perhaps after all not remarkable. One day, when I was sitting with her, it was just before she left town, she suddenly burst into tears. Before we parted I said to her that there were several women in London I liked very much, that was common enough, but for her I had a positive respect, and that was rare. My respect continues still, and it sometimes makes me furious. About the middle of January Ambrose Tester reappeared in town. He told me he came to bid me goodbye. He was going to be beheaded. It was no use saying that old relations would be the same after a man was married. They would be different. Everything would be different. I had wanted him to marry. And now I should see how I liked it he did and mention that I had also wanted him not to marry. And I was sure that if Lady Vandela had become his wife— she would have been a much greater impediment to our harmless friendship than Jocelyn Bernardstone would ever be. It took me but a short time to observe that he was in very much the same condition as Lady Vandela. He was finding how sweet it is to renounce, hand in hand with one we love. Upon him, too, the peace of the Lord had descended. He spoke of his father's delight at the nuptials being so near at hand, at the festivities that would take place in Dorsetshire when he should bring home his bride. The only allusion he made to what we had talked of the last time we were together was to exclaim suddenly, How can I tell you how easy she has made it? She is so sweet, so noble. She really is a perfect creature. I took for granted that he was talking of his future wife, but in a moment, as we were at cross-purposes, perceived that he meant Lady Vandela. This seemed to me really ominous. It stuck in my mind after he had left me. I was half tempted to write him a note to say, 
There is, after all, perhaps, something worse than your jilting Miss Bernard Stone would be, and that is the danger that your rupture with Lady Vandalum may become more of a bond than your marrying her would have been for heaven's sake. Let your sacrifice be a sacrifice. Keep it in its proper place. Of course I did and right. Even the slight responsibility I had already incurred began to frighten me, and I never saw Mr. Tester again till he was the husband of Jocelyn Bernardstone. They have now been married some four years. They have two children, the eldest of whom is, as he should be, a boy. Sir Edmund waited till his grandson had made good his place in the world, and then, feeling it was safe, he quietly, genially surrendered his trust. He died, holding the hand of his daughter-in-law, and giving it doubtless a pressure which was an injunction to be brave. I don't know what he thought of the success of his plan for his son, but perhaps, after all, he saw nothing amiss, for Jocelyn is the last woman in the world to have troubled him with her sorrows. From him, no doubt, she successfully concealed that bewilderment on which I have touched. You see I speak of her sorrows as if they were a matter of common recognition. Certain it is that any one who meets her must see that she does and pass her life in joy. Lady Vandela, as you know, has never married again. She is still the most beautiful widow in England. She enjoys the esteem of everyone, as well as the approbation of her conscience, for everyone knows the sacrifice she made, knows that she was even more in love with Sir Ambrose than he was with her. She goes out again, of course, as of old, and she constantly meets the baronet and his wife. She is supposed to be even, very nice, to Lady Tester, and she certainly treats her with exceeding civility. But you know, or perhaps you don't know, all the deadly things that, in London, may lie beneath that method. I don't in the least mean that Lady Vandela has any deadly intentions. She is a very good woman, and I am sure that in her heart she thinks she lets poor Jocelyn off very easily. But the result of the whole situation is that Jocelyn is in dreadful fear of her, for how can she help seeing that she has a very peculiar power over her husband? There couldn't have been a better occasion for observing the three together, if together it may be called, when Lady Tester is so completely outside, than those two days of ours at Doubleton. That's a house where they have met more than once before. I think she and Sir Ambrose like it. By she, I mean, as he used to mean, Lady Vandela. You saw how Lady Tester was absolutely white with uneasiness. What can she do when she meets everywhere the implication that if two people in our time have distinguished themselves for their virtue, it is her husband and Lady Vandela? It is my impression that this pair are exceedingly happy. His marriage has made a difference, and I see him much less frequently and less intimately. But when I meet him I notice in him a kind of emanation of quiet bliss. Yes, they are certainly in felicity, they have trod the clouds together, they have soared into the blue, and they wear in their faces the glory of those altitudes. They encourage, they cheer, inspire, sustain, each other, remind each other that they have chosen the better part of course they have to meet for this purpose, and their interviews are filled, I am sure, with its sanctity. He holds up his head, as a man may who on a very critical occasion behaved like a perfect gentleman. It is only poor Jocelyn that droops. Haven't I explained to you now why she doesn't understand? The Path of Duty By Henry James I His brilliant prospects dated from the death of his brother, who had no children, had indeed steadily refused to marry. When I say brilliant prospects, 
I mean the vision of the baronetcy, one of the oldest in England, of a charming seventeenth-century house, with its park, in Dorsetshire, and a property worth some twenty thousand a year. Such a collection of items is still dazzling to me, even after what you would call, I suppose, a familiarity with British grandeur. My husband is ent a baronet, or we probably should ent be in London in December, and he is far, alas, from having twenty thousand a year. The full enjoyment of these luxuries, on Ambrose Tester's part, was dependent naturally, on the death of his father, who was still very much to the fore at the time I first knew the young man. The proof of it is the way he kept nagging at his sons, as the younger used to say, on the question of taking a wife. The nagging had been of no avail, as I have mentioned, with regard to Francis, the elder, whose affections were centered, his brother himself told me, on the wine cup and the pharaoh table. He was not an exemplary or edifying character, and as the heir to an honorable name and a fine estate was very unsatisfactory indeed. It had been possible in those days to put him into the army, but it was not possible to keep him there, and he was still a very young man when it became plain that any parental dream of a career, for Frank Tester was exceedingly vain. Old Sir Edmund had thought matrimony would perhaps correct him, but a sterner process than this was needed, and it came to him one day at Monaco. He was most of the time abroad, after an illness so short that none of the family arrived in time. He was reformed altogether, he was utterly abolished. The second son, stepping into his shoes, was such an improvement that it was impossible there should be much simulation of mourning. You have seen him, you know what he is, there is very little mystery about him. As I am not going to show this composition to you, there is no harm in my writing here that he is, or at any rate he was, a remarkably attractive man. I don't say this because he made love to me, but precisely because he didn't. He was always in love with someone else, generally with Lady Vandela. You may say that in England that usually does and prevent, but Mr. Tester, though he had almost no intermissions, didn't, as a general thing, have duplicates. He was not provided with a second loved object. Understudying, as they say, the part. It was his practice to keep me accurately informed of the state of his affections, a matter about which he was never in the least vague. When he was in love he knew it and rejoiced in it, and when by a miracle he was not he greatly regretted it. He expatiated to me on the charms of other persons, and this interested me much more than if he had attempted to direct the conversation to my own, as regards which I had no illusions. He has told me some singular things, and I think I may say that for a considerable period my most valued knowledge of English society was extracted from this genial youth. I suppose he usually found me a woman of good counsel, for certain it is that he has appealed to me for the light of wisdom in very extraordinary predicaments. In his earlier years he was perpetually in hot water. He tumbled into scrapes as children tumble into puddles. He invited them, he invented them, and when he came to tell you how his trouble had come about, and he always told the whole truth, it was difficult to believe that a man should have been so idiotic. And yet he was not an idiot. He was supposed to be very clever, and certainly is very quick and amusing. He was only reckless, and extraordinarily natural, as natural as if he had been an Irishman. In fact, of all the Englishmen that I have known he is the most Irish in temperament, though he has got over it comparatively of late. I used to tell him that it was a great inconvenience that he didn't speak with a brogue, because then we should be forewarned, 
and know with whom we were dealing. He replied that, by analogy, if he were Irish enough to have a brogue he would probably be English, which seemed to me an answer wonderfully in character. Like most young Britons of his class he went to America, to see the great country, before he was twenty, and he took a letter to my father, who had occasion, a propos of some pickle of course, to render him a considerable service. This led to his coming to see me, I had already been living here three or four years, on his return, and that, in the course of time, led to our becoming fast friends, without, as I tell you, the smallest philandering on either side. But I must then protest too much. I shall excite your suspicion. If he has made love to so many women, why shouldn't he have made love to you? Some inquiry of that sort you will be likely to make. I have answered it already. Simply on account of those very engagements. He could end make love to everyone, and with me it would end have done him the least good. It was a more amiable weakness than his brother's, and he has always behaved very well. How well he behaved on a very important occasion is precisely the subject of my story. He was supposed to have embraced the diplomatic career, had been secretary of legation at some German capital, but after his brother's death he came home and looked out for a seat in Parliament. He found it with no great trouble and has kept it ever since. No one would have the heart to turn him out, he is so good-looking. It's a great thing to be represented by one of the handsomest men in England, it creates such a favorable association of ideas. Anyone would be amazed to discover that the borough he sits for, and the name of which I am always forgetting, is not a very pretty place. I have never seen it, and have no idea that it isn't, and I am sure he will survive every revolution. The people must feel that if they shouldn't keep him some monster would be returned. You remember his appearance, how tall, and fair, and strong he is, and always laughing, yet without looking silly. He is exactly the young man girls in America figure to themselves, in the place of the hero, when they read English novels, and wish to imagine something very aristocratic and Saxon. A bright Bostonian, who met him once at my house, exclaimed as soon as he had gone out of the room, At last, at last, I behold it, the mustache of Roland Tremaine. Of Roland Tremaine. Don't you remember in A Lawless Love, how often it's mentioned, and how glorious and golden it was? Well, I have never seen it till now, but now I have seen it. If you hadn't seen Ambrose Tester, the best description I could give of him would be to say that he looked like Roland Tremaine. I don't know whether that hero was a strong liberal, but this is what Sir Ambrose is supposed to be. He succeeded his father two years ago, but I shall come to that. He is not exactly what I should call thoughtful, but he is interested, or thinks he is, in a lot of things that I don't understand, and that one sees and skips in the newspapers, volunteering, and redistribution, and sanitation, and the representation of minors, minorities, what is it? When I said just now that he is always laughing, I ought to have explained that I did and mean when he is talking to Lady Vandela. She makes him serious, makes him almost solemn by which I don't mean that she bores him. Far from it. But when he is in her company he is thoughtful. He pulls his golden mustache, and Roland Tremaine looks as if his vision were turned in, and he were meditating on her words. He doesn't say much himself. It is she. She used to be so silent. Who does the talking? She has plenty to say to him. She describes to him the charms that she discovers in the path of duty. He seldom speaks in the house, I believe 
but when he does it's offhand, and amusing, and sensible, and every one likes it. He will never be a great statesman, but he will add to the softness of Dorsetshire and remain, in short, a very gallant, pleasant, prosperous, typical English gentleman, with a name, a fortune, a perfect appearance, a devoted, bewildered little wife, a great many reminiscences, a great many friends, including Lady Vandela and myself, and strange to say, with all these advantages, something that faintly resembles a conscience. 2. Five years ago he told me his father insisted on his marrying, would not hear of his putting it off any longer. Sir Edmund had been harping on this string ever since he came back from Germany, had made it both a general and a particular request, not only urging him to matrimony in the abstract, but pushing him into the arms of every young woman in the country. Ambrose had promised, procrastinated, temporized, but at last he was at the end of his evasions, and his poor father had taken the tone of supplication. He thinks immensely of the name, of the place and all that, and he has got it into his head that if I don't marry before he dies, I won't marry after. So much I remember Ambrose Tester said to me. It's a fixed idea. He has got it on the brain. He wants to see me married with his eyes, and he wants to take his grandson in his arms. Not without that will he be satisfied that the whole thing will go straight. He thinks he is nearing his end, but he isn't. He will live to see a hundred, don't you think so? And he has made me a solemn appeal to put an end to what he calls his suspense. He has an idea someone will get hold of me, some woman I can't marry. As if I were not old enough to take care of myself. Perhaps he is afraid of me. I suggested, facetiously. No, it isn't you, said my visitor, betraying by his tone that it was someone, though he didn't say whom. That's all rot, of course. One marries sooner or later, and I shall do like everyone else. If I marry before I die, it's as good as if I marry before he dies, isn't it? I should be delighted to have the governor at my wedding, but it isn't necessary for the legality, is it? I asked him what he wished me to do, and how I could help him. He knew already my peculiar views, that I was trying to get husbands for all the girls of my acquaintance, and to prevent the men from taking wives. The sight of an unmarried woman afflicted me, and yet when my male friends changed their state I took it as a personal offense. He let me know that so far as he was concerned I must prepare myself for this injury, for he had given his father his word that another twelve months should not see him a bachelor. The old man had given him carte blanche. He made no condition beyond exacting that the lady should have youth and health. Ambrose Tester, at any rate, had taken a vow and now he was going seriously to look about him. I said to him that what must be must be, and that there were plenty of charming girls about the land, among whom he could suit himself easily enough. There was no better match in England, I said, and he would only have to make his choice. That, however, is not what I thought, for my real reflections were summed up in the silent exclamation. What a pity Lady Vandela isn't a widow! I hadn't the smallest doubt that if she were he would marry her on the spot, and after he had gone I wondered considerably what she thought of this turn in his affairs. If it was disappointing to me, how little it must be to her taste. Sir Edmund had not been so much out of the way in fearing there might be obstacles to his son's taking the step he desired. Margaret Vandela was an obstacle. I knew it as well as if Mr. Tester had told me. I don't mean there was anything in their relation he might not freely have alluded to, for Lady Vandela, 
in spite of her beauty and her tiresome husband, was not a woman who could be accused of an indiscretion. Her husband was a pedant about trifles, the shape of his hat-brim, the pose of his coachman, and cared for nothing else. But she was as nearly a saint as one may be when one has rubbed shoulders for ten years with the best society in Europe. It is a characteristic of that society that even its saints are suspected, and I go too far in saying that little pinpricks were not administered, in considerable numbers to her reputation. But she did and feel them, for still more than Ambrose Tester she was a person to whose happiness a good conscience was necessary. I should almost say that for her happiness it was sufficient, and, at any rate, it was only those who didn't know her that pretended to speak of her lightly. If one had the honor of her acquaintance one might have thought her rather shut up to her beauty and her grandeur, but one could not but feel there was something in her composition that would keep her from vulgar aberrations. Her husband was such a feeble type that she must have felt doubly she had been put upon her honor. To deceive such a man as that was to make him more ridiculous than he was already, and from such a result a woman bearing his name may very well have shrunk. Perhaps it would have been worse for Lord Vandela, who had every pretension of his order and none of its amiability, if he had been a better, or at least, a clever man. When a woman behaves so well she is not obliged to be careful, and there is no need of consulting appearances when one is one's self in appearance. Lady Vandela accepted Ambrose Tester's attentions, and heaven knows they were frequent, but she had such an air of perfect equilibrium that one couldn't see her, in imagination, bend responsive. Incense was incense, but one saw her sitting quite serene among the fumes. That honor of her acquaintance of which I just now spoke it had been given me to enjoy, that is to say, I met her a dozen times in the season in a hot crowd, and we smiled sweetly and murmured a vague question or two, without hearing, or even trying to hear, each other's answer. If I knew that Ambrose Tester was perpetually in and out of her house and always arranging with her that they should go to the same places, I doubt whether she, on her side, knew how often he came to see me. I don't think he would have let her know, and am conscious, in saying this, that it indicated an advanced state of intimacy, with her, I mean. I also doubt very much whether he asked her to look about, on his behalf, for a future lady tester. This request he was so good as to make of me, but I told him I would have nothing to do with the matter. If Jocelyn is unhappy, I am thankful to say the responsibility is not mine. I have found English husbands for two or three American girls, but providing English wives is a different affair. I know the sort of men that will suit women, but one would have to be very clever to know the sort of women that will suit men. I told Ambrose Tester that he must look out for himself, but, in spite of his promise, I had very little belief that he would do anything of the sort. I thought it probable that the old baronet would pass away without seeing a new generation come in, though when I intimated as much to Mr. Tester, he made answer in substance, it was not quite so crudely said that his father— old as he was, would hold on till his bidding was done, and if it should not be done, he would hold on out of spite. Oh, he will tire me out. That I remember Ambrose Tester did say. I had done him injustice, for six months later he told me he was engaged. It had all come about very suddenly. From one day to the other the right young woman had been found. I forget who had found her, some aunt or cousin, I think. It had not been the young man himself. But when she was found, he rose to the occasion, he took her up seriously, he approved of her thoroughly, 
and I am not sure that he didn't fall a little in love with her, ridiculous, excuse my London tone, as this accident may appear. He told me that his father was delighted, and I knew afterwards that he had good reason to be. It was not till some weeks later that I saw the girl, but meanwhile I had received the pleasantest impression of her, and this impression came, must have come, mainly from what her intended told me. That proves that he spoke with some positiveness, spoke as if he really believed he was doing a good thing. I had it on my tongue's end to ask him how Lady Vandela liked her, but I fortunately checked this vulgar inquiry. He liked her evidently, as I say, everyone liked her, and when I knew her I liked her better even than the others. I like her today more than ever, it is fair you should know that, in reading this account of her situation. It doubtless colors my picture, gives a point to my sense of the strangeness of my little story. Jocelyn Bernardstone came of a military race, and had been brought up in camps, by which I don't mean she was one of those objectionable young women who are known as garrison hacks. She was in the flower of her freshness, and had been kept in the tent, receiving, as an only daughter, the most, particular, education from the excellent Lady Emily. General Bernardstone married a daughter of Lord Clanderfly, who looks like a pink-faced rabbit, and is, after Jocelyn, one of the nicest women I know. When I met them in a country house, a few weeks after the marriage was arranged, as they say here, Jocelyn won my affections by saying to me, with her timid directness, the speech made me feel sixty years old, that she must thank me for having been so kind to Mr. Tester. You saw her at Doubleton, and you will remember that though she has no regular beauty, many a prettier woman would be very glad to look like her. She is as fresh as a new-laid egg, as light as a feather, as strong as a male phaeton. She is perfectly mild, yet she is clever enough to be sharp if she would. I don't know that clever women are necessarily thought ill-natured, but it is usually taken for granted that amiable women are very limited. Lady Tester is a refutation of the theory, which must have been invented by a vixenish woman who was not clever. She has an adoration for her husband, which absorbs her without in the least making her silly, unless indeed it is silly to be modest, as in this brutal world I sometimes believe. Her modesty is so great that being unhappy has hitherto presented itself to her as a form of egotism, that egotism which she has too much delicacy to cultivate. She is by no means sure that if being married to her beautiful baronet is not the ideal state she dreamed it, the weak point of the affair is not simply in her own presumption. It does end express her condition, at present, to say that she is unhappy or disappointed, or that she has a sense of injury. All this is latent. Meanwhile, what is obvious is that she is bewildered, she simply doesn't understand, and her perplexity, to me, is unspeakably touching. She looks about her for some explanation, some light. She fixes her eyes on mine sometimes, and on those of other people, with a kind of searching dumbness, as if there were some chance that I, that they, may explain, may tell her what it is that has happened to her. I can explain very well, but not to her, only to you. 3. It was a brilliant match for Miss Bernardstone, who had no fortune at all, and all her friends were of the opinion that she had done very well after Easter she was in London with her people, and I saw a good deal of them, in fact, I rather cultivated them. They might perhaps even have thought me a little patronizing, if they had been given to thinking that sort of thing. But they were not, that is not in their line. 
English people are very apt to attribute motives. Some of them attribute much worse ones than we poor simpletons in America recognize, than we have even heard of. But that is only some of them. Others don't, but take everything literally and genially. That was the case with the Bernardstons. You could be sure that on their way home, after dining with you, they would end ask each other how in the world anyone could call you pretty, or say that many people did believe, all the same, that you had poisoned your grandfather. Lady Emily was exceedingly gratified at her daughter's engagement. Of course she was very quiet about it, she did and clap her hands or drag in Mr. Tester's name, but it was easy to see that she felt a kind of maternal peace, an abiding satisfaction. The young man behaved as well as possible, was constantly seen with Jocelyn, and smiled down at her in the kindest, most protecting way. They looked beautiful together. You would have said it was a duty for people whose color matched so well to marry. Of course he was immensely taken up, and didn't come very often to see me. But he came sometimes, and when he sat there he had a look which I didn't understand at first. Presently I saw what it expressed. In my drawing room he was off duty. He had no longer to sit up and play a part. He would lean back and rest and draw a long breath, and forget that the day of his execution was fixed. There was to be no indecent haste about the marriage. It was not to take place till after the session. At the end of August it puzzled me and rather distressed me. That his heart shouldn't be a little more in the matter. It seemed strange to be engaged to so charming a girl and yet go through with it as if it were simply a social duty. If one hadn't been in love with her at first, one ought to have been at the end of a week or two. If Ambrose Tester was not, and to me he did and pretend to be, he carried it off, as I have said, better than I should have expected. He was a gentleman, and he behaved like a gentleman, with the added punctilio, I think, of being sorry for his betrothed. But it was difficult to see what, in the long run, he could expect to make of such a position. If a man marries an ugly, unattractive woman for reasons of state, the thing is comparatively simple. It is understood between them, and he need have no remorse at not offering her a sentiment of which there has been no question. But when he picks out a charming creature to gratify his father and less convenances, it is not so easy to be happy in not being able to care for her. It seemed to me that it would have been much better for Ambrose Tester to bestow himself upon a girl who might have given him an excuse for tepidity. His wife should have been healthy but stupid, prolific but morose. Did he expect to continue not to be in love with Jocelyn, or to conceal from her the mechanical nature of his attentions? It was difficult to see how he could wish to do the one or succeed in doing the other. Did he expect such a girl as that would be happy if he did and love her? And did he think himself capable of being happy if it should turn out that she was miserable? If she shouldn't be miserable, that is, if she should be indifferent, and, as they say, console herself, would he like that any better? I asked myself all these questions and I should have liked to ask them of Mr. Tester, but I didn't, for after all he couldn't have answered them. Per young man! He didn't pry into things as I do. He was not analytic, like us Americans, as they say in reviews. He thought he was behaving remarkably well, and so he was, for a man, that was the strange part of it. It had been proper that in spite of his reluctance he should take a wife, and he had dutifully said about it. As a good thing is better for being well done, he had taken the best one he could possibly find. He was enchanted with, with his young lady you might ask? Not in the least, 
with himself, that is the sort of person a man is. Their virtues are more dangerous than their vices, and heaven preserve you when they want to keep a promise. It is never a promise to you, you will notice. A man will sacrifice a woman to live as a gentleman should, and then ask for your sympathy, for him. And I don't speak of the bad ones, but of the good. They, after all, are the worst Ambrose Tester, as I say, didn't go into these details, but synthetic as he might be, was conscious that his position was false. He felt that sooner or later, and rather sooner than later, he would have to make it true, a process that couldn't possibly be agreeable. He would really have to make up his mind to care for his wife or not to care for her. What would Lady Vandalus say to one alternative, and what would little Jocelyn say to the other? That is what it was to have a pertinacious father and to be an accommodating son. With me, it was easy for Ambrose Tester to be superficial, for, as I tell you, if I didn't wish to engage him, I didn't wish to disengage him, and I didn't insist Lady Vandela insisted, I was afraid. To be with her was of course very complicated, even more than Miss Bernardstone she must have made him feel that his position was false. I must add that he once mentioned to me that she had told him he ought to marry. At any rate, it is an immense thing to be a pleasant fellow. Our young fellow was so universally pleasant that of course his fiancée came in for her share. So did Lady Emily, suffused with hope, which made her pinker than ever. She told me he sent flowers even to her. One day in the park, I was riding early. The row was almost empty. I came up behind a lady and gentleman who were walking their horses, close to each other, side by side in a moment I recognized her, but not before seeing that nothing could have been more benevolent than the way Ambrose Tester was bending over his future wife. If he struck me as a lover at that moment, of course he struck her so. But that isn't the way they ride today. 4. One day, about the end of June, he came in to see me when I had two or three other visitors. You know that even at that season I am almost always at home from six to seven. He had not been three minutes in the room before I saw that he was different, different from what he had been the last time, and I guessed that something had happened in relation to his marriage. My visitors didn't, unfortunately, and they stayed and stayed until I was afraid he would have to go away without telling me what, I was sure, he had come for. But he sat them out. I think that by exception they didn't find him pleasant. After we were alone he abused them a little, and then he said, Have you heard about Vandela? He asked very ill. She's awfully anxious. I hadn't heard, and I told him so, asking a question or two, then my inquiries ceased, my breath almost failed me, for I had become aware of something very strange. The way he looked at me when he told me his news was a full confession, a confession so full that I had needed a moment to take it in. He was not too strong a man to be taken by surprise, not so strong but that in the presence of an unexpected occasion his first movement was to look about for a little help. I venture to call it help, the sort of thing he came to me for on that summer afternoon. It is always help when a woman who is not an idiot lets an embarrassed man take up her time. If he too is not an idiot, that doesn't diminish the service. On the contrary his superiority to the average helps him to profit. Ambrose Tester had said to me more than once, in the past, that he was capable of telling me things, because I was an American, that he wouldn't confide to his own people. He had proved it before this, as I have hinted, and I must say that being an American, with him, 
was sometimes a questionable honor. I don't know whether he thinks us more discreet and more sympathetic, if he keeps up the system, he has abandoned it with me, or only more insensible, more proof against shocks. But it is certain that, like some other Englishmen I have known, he has appeared, in delicate cases, to think I would take a comprehensive view. When I have inquired into the grounds of this discrimination in our favor, he has contented himself with saying, in the British cursory manner, Oh, I don't know, you are different. I remember he remarked once that our impressions were fresher. And I am sure that now it was because of my nationality, in addition to other merits, that he treated me to the confession I have just alluded to. At least I don't suppose he would have gone about saying to people in general, Her husband will probably die, you know, then why shouldn't I marry Lady Vandela? That was the question which his whole expression and manner asked of me, and of which, after a moment, I decided to take no notice. Why shouldn't he? There was an excellent reason why he should end it would just kill Jocelyn Bernardstone. That was why he should end. The idea that he should be ready to do it frightened me, and independent as he might think my point of view, I had no desire to discuss such abominations. It struck me as an abomination at this very first moment, and I have never wavered in my judgment of it. I am always glad when I can take the measure of a thing as soon as I see it. It is a blessing to feel what we think, without balancing and comparing. It's a great rest, too, and a great luxury. That, as I say, was the case with the feeling excited in me by this happy idea of Ambrose Tester's. Cruel and wanton I thought it then, cruel and wanton I thought it later, when it was pressed upon me. I knew there were many other people that didn't agree with me and I can only hope for them that their conviction was as quick and positive as mine. It all depends upon the way a thing strikes one. But I will add to this another remark. I thought I was right then, and I still think I was right. But it strikes me as a pity that I should have wished so much to be right why couldn't I be content to be wrong, to renounce my influence, since I appeared to possess the mystic article, and let my young friend do as he liked? As you observe the situation at Doubleton— Shouldn't you say it was of a nature to make one wonder whether, after all, one did render a service to the younger lady? At all events, as I say, I gave no sign to Ambrose Tester that I understood him, that I guessed what he wished to come to. He got no satisfaction out of me that day. It is very true that he made up for it later. I expressed regret at Lord Vandela's illness, inquired into its nature and origin, hoped it would end prove as grave as might be feared, said I would call at the house and ask about him, commiserated discreetly her ladyship, and in short gave my young man no chance whatever. He knew that I had guessed his arrière-pensée, but he let me off for the moment, for which I was thankful, either because he was still ashamed of it, or because he supposed I was reserving myself for the catastrophe, should it occur. Well, my dear, it did occur, at the end of ten days. Mr. Tester came to see me twice in that interval, each time to tell me that poor Vandela was worse, he had some internal inflammation which, in nine cases out of ten, is fatal. His wife was all devotion, she was with him night and day. I had the news from other sources as well. I leave you to imagine whether in London, at the height of the season, such a situation could fail to be considerably discussed. To the discussion as yet, however, I contributed little and with Ambrose Tester nothing at all. I was still on my guard. I never admitted for a moment that it was possible there should be any change in his plans. By this time, I think, 
he had quite ceased to be ashamed of his idea. He was in a state almost of exaltation about it, but he was very angry with me for not giving him an opening. As I look back upon the matter now, there is something almost amusing in the way we watched each other, he thinking that I evaded his question only to torment him, he believed me, or pretended to believe me, capable of this sort of perversity, and I determined not to lose ground by betraying an insight into his state of mind which he might twist into an expression of sympathy. I wished to leave my sympathy where I had placed it, with Lady Emily and her daughter, of whom I continued, bumping against them at parties, to have some observation. They gave no signal of alarm. Of course it would have been premature. The girl, I am sure, had no idea of the existence of a rival. How they had kept her in the dark I don't know, but it was easy to see she was too much in love to suspect or to criticize. With Lady Emily it was different. She was a woman of charity, but she touched the world at too many points not to feel its vibrations. However, the dear little woman planted herself firmly. To the eye she was still enough. It was not from Ambrose Tester that I first heard of Lord Vandela's death. It was announced, with a quarter of a column of padding, in the Times. I have always known the Times was a wonderful journal, but this never came home to me so much as when it produced a quarter of a column about Lord Vandela. It was a triumph of word spinning. If he had carried out his vocation, if he had been a tailor or a hatter, that's how I see him, there might have been something to say about him. But he missed his vocation, he missed everything but posthumous honors. I was so sure Ambrose Tester would come in that afternoon, and so sure he knew I should expect him, that I threw over an engagement on purpose. But he didn't come in, nor the next day, nor the next. There were two possible explanations of his absence. One was that he was giving all his time to consoling Lady Vandela. The other was that he was giving it all, as a blind, to Jocelyn Bernardstone. Both proved incorrect, for when he at last turned up he told me he had been for a week in the country, at his father's. Sir Edmund also had been unwell, but he had pulled through better than poor Lord Vandela. I wondered at first whether his son had been talking over with him the question of a change of base, but guessed in a moment that he had not suffered this alarm. I don't think that Ambrose would have spared him if he had thought it necessary to give him warning, but he probably held that his father would have no ground for complaint so long as he should marry someone, would have no right to remonstrate if he simply transferred his contract. Lady Vandela had had two children, whom she had lost, and might therefore— have others whom she should end lose, that would have been a reply to nice discriminations on Sir Edmund's part. V. In reality, what the young man had been doing was thinking it over beneath his ancestral oaks and beeches. His countenance showed this, showed it more than Miss Bernardstone could have liked. He looked like a man who was crossed, not like a man who was happy in love. I was no more disposed than before to help him out with his plot but at the end of ten minutes we were articulately discussing it. When I say we were, I mean he was, for I sat before him quite mute, at first, and amazed at the clearness with which, before his conscience, he had argued his case. He had persuaded himself that it was quite a simple matter to throw over poor Jocelyn and keep himself free for the expiration of Lady Vandela's term of mourning. The deliberations of an impulsive man sometimes land him in strange countries. Ambrose Tester confided his plan to me as a tremendous secret. He professed to wish immensely to know how it appeared to me, 
and whether my woman's wit couldn't discover for him some loophole big enough round, some honorable way of not keeping faith. Yet at the same time he seemed not to foresee that I should, of necessity, be simply horrified, disconcerted and perplexed, a little, that he was prepared to find me. But if I had refused, as yet, to come to his assistance, he appeared to suppose it was only because of the real difficulty of suggesting to him that perfect pretext of which he was in want. He evidently counted upon me, however, for some illuminating proposal, and I think he would have liked to say to me, You have always pretended to be a great friend of mine. I hadn't. The pretension was all on his side. And now is your chance to show it. Go to Jocelyn and make her feel, women have a hundred ways of doing that sort of thing, that through Vandela's death the change in my situation is complete. If she is the girl I take her for, she will know what to do in the premises. I was not prepared to oblige him to this degree, and I lost no time in telling him so, after my first surprise at seeing how definite his purpose had become. His contention, after all, was very simple. He had been in love with Lady Vandela for years, and was now more in love with her than ever. There had been no appearance of her being, within a calculable period, liberated by the death of her husband. This nobleman was, he didn't say what just then, it was too soon, but he was only forty years old, and in such health and preservation as to make such a contingency infinitely remote. Under these circumstances, Ambrose had been driven, for the most worldly reasons, he was ashamed of them, pa, into an engagement with a girl he didn't love, and didn't pretend to love. Suddenly the unexpected occurred. The woman he did love had become accessible to him, and all the relations of things were altered. Why shouldn't he alter, too? Why shouldn't Miss Bernardstone alter, Lady Emily alter, and every one alter? It would be wrong in him to marry Jocelyn in so changed a world. A moment's consideration would certainly assure me of that. He could no longer carry out his part of the bargain, and the transaction must stop before it went any further. If Jocelyn knew, she would be the first to recognize this, and the thing for her now was to know. Go and tell her then, if you are so sure of it. I said. I wonder you have put it off so many days. He looked at me with a melancholy eye. Of course I know it's beastly awkward. It was beastly awkward certainly. There I could quite agree with him, and this was the only sympathy he extracted from me. It was impossible to be less helpful, less merciful, to an embarrassed young man than I was on that occasion. But other occasions followed very quickly, on which Mr. Tester renewed his appeal with greater eloquence. He assured me that it was torture to be with his intended, and every hour that he did and break off committed him more deeply and more fatally. I repeated only once my previous question, asked him only once why then he didn't tell her he had changed his mind. The inquiry was idle, was even unkind, for my young man was in a very tight place. He didn't tell her, simply because he couldn't, in spite of the anguish of feeling that his chance to right himself was rapidly passing away. When I asked him if Jocelyn appeared to have guessed nothing, he broke out. How in the world can she guess, when I am so kind to her? I am so sorry for her, poor little wretch, that I can't help being nice to her. And from the moment I am nice to her she thinks it's all right. I could see perfectly what he meant by that, and I liked him more for this little generosity than I disliked him for his nefarious scheme. In fact, I didn't dislike him at all when I saw what an influence my judgment would have on him. 
I very soon gave him the full benefit of it. I had thought over his case with all the advantages of his own presentation of it, and it was impossible for me to see how he could decently get rid of the girl. That, as I have said, had been my original opinion, and quickened reflection only confirmed it. As I have also said, I had not in the least recommended him to become engaged, but once he had done so I recommended him to abide by it. It was all very well being in love with Lady Vandela. He might be in love with her, but he had not promised to marry her. It was all very well not being in love with Miss Bernardstone, but, as it happened, he had promised to marry her, and in my country a gentleman was supposed to keep such promises. If it was a question of keeping them only so long as was convenient, where would any of us be? I assure you I became very eloquent and moral, yes, moral, I maintain the word, in spite of your perhaps thinking, as you are very capable of doing, that I ought to have advised him in just the opposite sense. It was not a question of love, but of marriage, for he had never promised to love poor Jocelyn. It was useless his saying it was dreadful to marry without love. He knew that he thought it, and the people he lived with thought it, nothing of the kind. Half his friends had married on those terms. Yes, and a pretty sight their private life presented. That might be, but it was the first time I had ever heard him say it. A fortnight before he had been quite ready to do like the others. I knew what I thought, and I suppose I expressed it with some clearness, for my arguments made him still more uncomfortable, unable as he was either to accept them or to act in contempt of them. Why he should have cared so much for my opinion is a mystery I can't elucidate. To understand my little story, you must simply swallow it. That he did care is proved by the exasperation with which he suddenly broke out. Well, then, as I understand you, what you recommend me is to marry Miss Bernardstone and carry on an intrigue with Lady Vandela. He knew perfectly that I recommended nothing of the sort, and he must have been very angry to indulge in this balade. He told me that other people did and think as I did, that every one was of the opinion that between a woman he did and love and a woman he had adored for years it was a plain moral duty not to hesitate. Don't hesitate then, I exclaimed but I didn't get rid of him with this, for he returned to the charge more than once, he came to me so often that I thought he must neglect both his other alternatives, and let me know again that the voice of society was quite against my view. You will doubtless be surprised at such an intimation that he had taken, society, into his confidence, and wonder whether he went about asking people whether they thought he might back out. I can't tell you exactly but I know that for some weeks his dilemma was a great deal talked about. His friends perceived he was at the parting of the roads, and many of them had no difficulty in saying which one they would take. Some observers thought he ought to do nothing, to leave things as they were. Others took very high ground and discoursed upon the sanctity of love and the wickedness of really deceiving the girl, as that would be what it would amount to, if he should lead her to the altar. Some held that it was too late to escape, Others maintain that it is never too late. Some thought Miss Bernardstone very much to be pitied. Some reserved their compassion for Ambrose Tester. Others, still, lavished it upon Lady Vandela. The prevailing opinion, I think, was that he ought to obey the promptings of his heart. London cares so much for the heart. Or is it that London is simply ferocious, and always prefers the spectacle that is more entertaining? As it would prolong the drama for the young man to throw over Miss Bernardstone, there was a considerable readiness to see the poor girl sacrificed. 
she was like a Christian maiden in the Roman arena. That is what Ambrose Tester meant by telling me that public opinion was on his side. I don't think he chattered about his quandary, but people, knowing his situation, guessed what was going on in his mind, and he on his side guessed what they said. London discussions might as well go on in the whispering gallery of S.T. Paul's. I could of course do only one thing, I could but reaffirm my conviction that the Roman attitude, as I may call it, was cruel, was falsely sentimental. This naturally did and help him as he wished to be helped, did and remove the obstacle to his marrying in a year or two Lady Vandela. Yet he continued to look to me for inspiration, I must say it at the cost of making him appear a very feeble-minded gentleman. There was a moment when I thought him capable of an oblique movement, of temporizing with a view to escape. If he succeeded in postponing his marriage long enough, the Bernardstons would throw him over and I suspect that for a day he entertained the idea of fixing this responsibility on them. But he was too honest and too generous to do so for longer, and his destiny was staring him in the face when an accident gave him a momentary relief. General Bernard Stone died, after an illness as sudden and short as that which had carried off Lord Vandela. His wife and daughter were plunged into mourning and immediately retired into the country. A week later we heard that the girl's marriage would be put off for several months, partly on account of her mourning, and partly because her mother, whose only companion she had now become, could not bear to part with her at the time originally fixed and actually so near. People of course looked at each other, said it was the beginning of the end, a dodge, of Ambrose Testers. I wonder they didn't accuse him of poisoning the poor old general. I know to a certainty that he had nothing to do with the delay that the proposal came from Lady Emily, who, in her bereavement, wished, very naturally, to keep a few months longer the child she was going to lose forever. It must be said, in justice to her prospective son-in-law, that he was capable either of resigning himself or of frankly, with however many blushes, telling Jocelyn he couldn't keep his agreement, but was not capable of trying to wriggle out of his difficulty. The plan of simply telling Jocelyn he couldn't, this was the one he had fixed upon as the best, and this was the one of which I remarked to him that it had a defect which should be counted against its advantages. The defect was that it would kill Jocelyn on the spot. I think he believed me, and his believing me made this unexpected respite very welcome to him. There was no knowing what might happen in the interval, and he passed a large part of it in looking for an issue. And yet, at the same time, he kept up the usual forms with the girl whom in his heart he had renounced. I was told more than once, for I had lost sight of the pair during the summer and autumn, that these forms were at times very casual, that he neglected Miss Bernard Stone most flagrantly, and had quite resumed his old intimacy with Lady Vandela. I don't exactly know what was meant by this, for she spent the first three months of her widowhood in complete seclusion, in her own old house in Norfolk, where he certainly was not staying with her. I believe he stayed some time, for the partridge shooting, at a place a few miles off. It came to my ears that if Miss Bernard Stone did and take the hint it was because she was determined to stick to him through thick and thin. She never offered to let him off, and I was sure she never would. But I was equally sure that, strange as it may appear, he had not ceased to be nice to her. I have never exactly understood why he didn't hate her, and I am convinced that he was not a comedian in his conduct to her he was only a good fellow. I have spoken of the satisfaction that Sir Edmund took in his daughter-in-law that was to be. He delighted in looking at her, 
longed for her when she was out of his sight, and had her, with her mother, staying with him in the country for weeks together. If Ambrose was not so constantly at her side as he might have been, this deficiency was covered by his father's devotion to her, by her appearance of being already one of the family. Mr. Tester was away as he might be away if they were already married. 6. In October I met him at Doubleton. We spent three days there together. He was enjoying his respite, as he didn't scruple to tell me, and he talked to me a great deal, as usual, about Lady Vandela. He didn't mention Jocelyn's name, except by implication in this assurance of how much he valued his weeks of grace. Do you mean to say that, under the circumstances, Lady Vandela is willing to marry you? I made this inquiry more expressively, doubtless, than before. For when we had talked of the matter then he had naturally spoken of her consent as a simple contingency. It was contingent upon the lapse of the first months of her bereavement. It was not a question he could begin to press a few days after her husband's death. Not immediately, of course, but if I wait, I think so. That, I remember, was his answer. If you wait till you get rid of that poor girl, of course. She knows nothing about that. It's none of her business. Do you mean to say she does and know you are engaged? How should she know it? How should she believe it? When she sees how I love her, the young man exclaimed. But he admitted afterwards that he had not deceived her, and that she rendered full justice to the motives that had determined him. He thought he could answer for it that she would marry him some day or other. Then she is a very cruel woman, I said, and I should like, if you please, to hear no more about her. He protested against this, and a month later brought her up again for a purpose. The purpose, you will see, was a very strange one indeed. I had then come back to town. It was the early part of December. I supposed he was hunting, with his own hounds but he appeared one afternoon in my drawing-room and told me I should do him a great favor if I would go and see Lady Vandela. Go and see her? What do you mean, in Norfolk? She has come up to London, didn't you know it? She has a lot of business. She will be kept here till Christmas. I wish you would go. Why should I go? I asked. Won't you be kept here till Christmas, too, and isn't that company enough for her? Upon my word, you are cruel, he said. And it's a great shame of you, when a man is trying to do his duty and is behaving like a saint. Is that what you call saintly, spending all your time with Lady Vandela? I will tell you whom I think a saint, if you would like to know. You need and tell me. I know it better than you. I haven't a word to say against her. Only she is stupid and hasn't any perceptions. If I am stopping a bit in London you don't understand why. It's as if you hadn't any perceptions either. If I am here for a few days, I know what I am about. Why should I understand? I asked, not very candidly, because I should have been glad to. It's your own affair. You know what you are about, as you say, and of course you have counted the cost. What cost do you mean? It's a pretty cost, I can tell you. And then he tried to explain, if I would only enter into it, and not be so suspicious. He was in London for the express purpose of breaking off. Breaking off what, your engagement? No, no, damn my engagement, the other thing. My acquaintance, my relations. Your intimacy with Lady Van? It was not very gentle, but I believe I burst out laughing. If this is the way you break off, pray what would you do to keep up? He flushed, and looked both foolish and angry, 
for of course it was not very difficult to see my point. But he was, in a very clumsy manner of his own, trying to cultivate a good conscience, and he was getting no credit for it. I suppose I may be allowed to look at her. It's a matter we have to talk over. One doesn't drop such a friend in half an hour. One doesn't drop her at all, unless one has the strength to make a sacrifice. It's easy for you to talk of sacrifice. You don't know what she is, my visitor cried. I think I know what she is not. She is not a friend, as you call her, if she encourages you in the wrong, if she doesn't help you. No, I have no patience with her, I declared. I don't like her, and I won't go to see her. Mr. Tester looked at me a moment, as if he were too vexed to trust himself to speak. He had to make an effort not to say something rude. That effort, however, he was capable of making, and though he held his hat as if he were going to walk out of the house, he ended by staying, by putting it down again, by leaning his head, with his elbows on his knees, in his hands, and groaning out that he had never heard of anything so impossible, and that he was the most wretched man in England. I was very sorry for him, and of course I told him so, but privately I did and think he stood up to his duty as he ought. I said to him, however, that if he would give me his word of honor that he would not abandon Miss Bernardstone, there was no trouble I wouldn't take to be of use to him. I did and think Lady Vandela was behaving well. He must allow me to repeat that, but if going to see her would give him any pleasure, of course there was no question of pleasure for her, I would go fifty times. I couldn't imagine how it would help him, but I would do it as I would do anything else he asked me. He didn't give me his word of honor, but he said quietly, I shall go straight, you needn't be afraid. And as he spoke there was honor enough in his face. This left an opening, of course, for another catastrophe. There might be further postponements, and poor Lady Emily, indignant for the first time in her life, might declare that her daughter's situation had become intolerable and that they withdrew from the engagement. But this was too odious a chance, and I accepted Mr. Tester's assurance. He told me that the good I could do by going to see Lady Vandela was that it would cheer her up, in that dreary, big house in Upper Brook Street, where she was absolutely alone, with horrible overalls on the furniture, and newspapers, actually newspapers, on the mirrors. She was seeing no one, there was no one to see, but he knew she would see me. I asked him if she knew, then, he was to speak to me of coming, and whether I might allude to him, whether it was not too delicate. I shall never forget his answer to this, nor the tone in which he made it, blushing a little, and looking away. Allude to me? Rather, it was not the most fatuous speech I had ever heard. It had the effect of being the most modest, and it gave me an odd idea, and especially a new one, of the condition in which, at any time, one might be destined to find Lady Vandela. If she, too, were engaged in a struggle with her conscience, in this light they were an edifying pair, it had perhaps changed her considerably, made her more approachable, and I reflected, ingeniously, that it probably had a humanizing effect upon her. Ambrose Tester didn't go away after I had told him that I would comply with his request. He lingered, fidgeting with his stick and gloves, and I perceived that he had more to tell me, and that the real reason why he wished me to go and see Lady Vandela was not that she had newspapers on her mirrors. He came out with it at last for that. Rather, of his, with the way I took it, had broken the ice. You say you don't think she behaved well, 
He naturally wished to defend her. But I dare say you don't understand her position. Perhaps you wouldn't behave any better in her place. It's very good of you to imagine me there, I remarked laughing. It's awkward for me to say. One doesn't want to dot one's eyes to that extent. She would be delighted to marry you. That's not such a mystery. Well, she likes me awfully, Mr. Tester said, looking like a handsome child. It's not all on one side, it's on both. That's the difficulty. You mean she won't let you go, she holds you fast? But the poor fellow had, in delicacy, said enough, and at this he jumped up. He stood there a moment, smoothing his hat, then he broke out again. Please do this. Let her know, make her feel. You can bring it in, you know. And here he paused, embarrassed. What can I bring in, Mr. Tester? That's the difficulty, as you say. What you told me the other day. You know. What you have told me before. What I have told you. That it would put an end to Jocelyn. If you can't work round to it, what's the good of being, you? And with this tribute to my powers he took his departure. 7. It was all very well of him to be so flattering, but I really did and see myself talking in that manner to Lady Vandela. I wondered why he didn't give her this information himself, and what particular value it could have as coming from me. Then I said to myself that of course he had mentioned to her the truth I had impressed upon him, and which by this time he had evidently taken home, but that to enable it to produce its full effect upon Lady Yandler the further testimony of a witness more independent was required. There was nothing for me but to go and see her, and I went the next day, fully conscious that to execute Mr. Tester's commission I should have either to find myself very brave or to find her strangely confidential, and fully prepared, also, not to be admitted. But she received me, and the house in Upper Brook Street was as dismal as Ambrose Tester had represented it. The December fog, the afternoon was very dusky, seemed to pervade the muffled rooms, and her ladyship's pink lamplight to waste itself in the brown atmosphere. He had mentioned to me that the heir to the title, a cousin of her husband, who had left her unmolested for several months, was now taking possession of everything, so that what kept her in town was the business of her turning out, and certain formalities connected with her dower. This was very ample, and the large provision made for her included the London house. She was very gracious on this occasion, but she certainly had remarkably little to say. Still, she was different or at any rate, having taken that hint, I saw her differently. I saw, indeed, that I had never quite done her justice, that I had exaggerated her stiffness, attributed to her a kind of conscious grandeur which was in reality much more an accident of her appearance, of her figure, than a quality of her character. Her appearance is as grand as you know, and on the day I speak of, in her simplified mourning, under those vaguely gleaming lambras, she looked as beautiful as a great white lily. She is very simple and good-natured. She will never make an advance, but she will always respond to one, and I saw, that evening, that the way to get on with her was to treat her as if she were not too imposing. I saw also that, with her numb-like robes and languid eyes, she was a woman who might be immensely in love. All the same, we hadn't much to say to each other. She remarked that it was very kind of me to come, that she wondered how I could endure London at that season that she had taken a drive and found the park too dreadful, that she would ring for some more tea if I did and like what she had given me. Our conversation wandered, stumbling a little, 
among these platitudes, but no allusion was made on either side to Ambrose Tester. Nevertheless, as I have said, she was different, though it was not till I got home that I phrased to myself what I had detected. Then, recalling her white face, and the deeper, stranger expression of her beautiful eyes, I entertained myself with the idea that she was under the influence of suppressed exaltation. The more I thought of her, the more she appeared to me not natural, wound up, as it were, to a calmness beneath which there was a deal of agitation. This would have been nonsense if I had not, two days afterwards, received a note from her which struck me as an absolutely exalted production. Not superficially, of course, to the casual eye it would have been perfectly commonplace. But this was precisely its peculiarity, that Lady Vandalus should have written me a note which had no apparent point save that she should like to see me again, a desire for which she did succeed in assigning a reason. She reminded me that she was paying no calls, and she hoped I wouldn't stand on ceremony, but come in very soon again, she had enjoyed my visit so much. We had not been on note-writing terms, and there was nothing in that visit to alter our relations. Moreover, six months before, she would not have dreamed of addressing me in that way. I was doubly convinced, therefore, that she was passing through a crisis, that she was not in her normal state of nerves. Mr. Tester had not reappeared since the occasion I have described at length, and I thought it possible he had been capable of the bravery of leaving town. I had, however, no fear of meeting him in Upper Brook Street, for, according to my theory of his relations with Lady Vaudelaire, he regularly spent his evenings with her, it being clear to me that they must dine together. I could answer her note only by going to see her the next day, when I found abundant confirmation of that idea about the crisis. I must confess to you in advance that I have never really understood her behavior, never understood why she should have taken me so suddenly, with whatever reserves, and however much by implication merely, into her confidence. All I can say is that this is an accident to which one is exposed with English people, who, in my opinion, and contrary to common report, are the most demonstrative, the most expansive, the most gushing in the world. I think she felt rather isolated at this moment, and she had never had many intimates of her own sex. That sex, as a general thing, disapproved of her proceedings during the last few months, held that she was making Jocelyn Bernardstone suffer too cruelly. She possibly felt the weight of this censure, and at all events was not above wishing someone to know that whatever injury had fallen upon the girl to whom Mr. Tester had so stupidly engaged himself, had not, so far as she was concerned, been wantonly inflicted. I was there, I was more or less aware of her situation, and I would do as well as any one else. She seemed really glad to see me, but she was very nervous. Nevertheless, nearly half an hour elapsed, and I was still wondering whether she had sent for me only to discuss the question of how a London house whose appointments had the stamp of a debased period, it had been thought very handsome in 1850, could be, done up, without being made aesthetic. I forget what satisfaction I gave her on this point. I was asking myself how I could work round in the manner prescribed by Jocelyn's intended. At the last, however, to my extreme surprise, Lady Vandela herself relieved me of this effort. I think you know Mr. Tester rather well, she remarked, abruptly, irrelevantly, and with a face more conscious of the bearings of things than any I had ever seen her wear. On my confessing to such an acquaintance, she mentioned that Mr. Tester, who had been in London a few days, perhaps I had seen him, 
had left town and wouldn't come back for several weeks. This, for the moment, seemed to be all she had to communicate, but she sat looking at me from the corner of her sofa as if she wished me to profit in some way by the opportunity she had given me. Did she want help from outside, this proud, inscrutable woman, and was she reduced to throwing out signals of distress? Did she wish to be protected against herself, applauded for such efforts as she had already made? I didn't rush forward. I was not precipitate, for I felt that now, surely, I should be able at my convenience to execute my commission. What concerned me was not to prevent Lady Vandela's marrying Mr. Tester, but to prevent Mr. Tester's marrying her. In a few moments, with the same irrelevance, she announced to me that he wished to, and asked whether I didn't know it I saw that this was my chance, and instantly, with extreme energy, I exclaimed, Ah, for heaven's sake don't listen to him! It would kill Miss Bernard's tone. The tone of my voice made her color a little, and she repeated, Miss Bernard's tone? The girl he is engaged to, or has been, don't you know? Excuse me, I thought everyone knew. Of course I know he is dreadfully entangled. He was fairly hunted down. Lady Vandela was silent a moment, and then she added, with a strange smile, Fancy, in such a situation, his wanting to marry me. Fancy, I replied. I was so struck with the oddity of her telling me her secrets that for the moment my indignation did not come to a head, my indignation, I mean, at her accusing poor Lady Emily, and even the girl herself, of having, trapped, our friend. Later I said to myself that I supposed she was within her literal right in abusing her rival, if she was trying sincerely to give him up. I don't know anything about his having been hunted down, I said. But this I do know, Lady Vandela, I assure you, that if he should throw Jocelyn over she would simply go out like that. And I snapped my fingers. Lady Vandela listened to this serenely enough. She tried at least to take the air of a woman who has no need of new arguments. Do you know her very well? She asked, as if she had been struck by my calling Miss Bernard Stone by her Christian name. Well enough to like her very much, I was going to say. To pity her but I thought better of it. She must be a person of very little spirit. If a man were to jilt me, I don't think I should go out, cried her ladyship with a laugh. Nothing is more probable than that she has not your courage or your wisdom. She may be weak, but she is passionately in love with him. I looked straight into Lady Vandela's eyes as I said this, and I was conscious that it was a tolerably good description of my hostess. Do you think she would really die? she asked in a moment. Die as if one should stab her with a knife. Some people don't believe in broken hearts. I continued. I did until I knew Jocelyn Bernardstone. Then I felt that she had one that would end be proof. One ought to live, one ought always to live, said Lady Yandler, and always to hold up one's head. Ah, uh, I suppose that one ought end to feel at all, if one wishes to be a great success. What do you call a great success? she asked. Never having occasion to be pitted. Being pitted? That must be odious, she said, and I saw that though she might wish for admiration, she would never wish for sympathy. Then, in a moment, she added that men, in her opinion, were very base, a remark that was deep, but not, I think, very honest, that is, in so far as the purpose of it had been to give me the idea that Ambrose Tester had done nothing but press her, and she had done nothing but resist. They were very odd, 
the discrepancies in the statements of each of this pair. But it must be said for Lady Vandela that now that she had made up her mind, as I believed she had, to sacrifice herself, she really persuaded herself that she had not had a moment of weakness. She quite unbosomed herself, and I fairly assisted at her crisis. It appears that she had a conscience, very much so, and even a high ideal of duty. She represented herself as moving heaven and earth to keep Ambrose Tester up to the mark, and you would never have guessed from what she told me that she had entertained ever so faintly the idea of marrying him. I am sure this was a dreadful perversion, but I forgave it on the score of that exaltation of which I have spoken. The things she said, and the way she said them, come back to me, and I thought that if she looked as handsome as that when she preached virtue to Mr. Tester, it was no wonder he liked the sermon to be going on perpetually. I dare say you know what old friends we are, but that doesn't make any difference, does it? Nothing would induce me to marry him. I haven't the smallest intention of marrying again. It is not a time for me to think of marrying, before his lordship has been dead six months. The girl is nothing to me, I know nothing about her, and I don't wish to know, but I should be very, very sorry if she were unhappy. He is the best friend I ever had, but I don't see that that's any reason I should marry him, do you? Lady Vaudelaire appealed to me, but without waiting for my answers, asking advice in spite of herself, and then remembering it was beneath her dignity to appear to be in need of it. I have told him that if he does and act properly I shall never speak to him again. She's a charming girl, everyone says, and I have no doubt she will make him perfectly happy. Men don't feel things like women, I think, and if they are coddled and flattered they forget the rest. I have no doubt she is very sufficient for all that. For me, at any rate, once I see a thing in a certain way, I must abide by that I think people are so dreadful, they do such horrible things. They don't seem to think what one's duty may be. I don't know whether you think much about that, but really one must at times, don't you think so? Everyone is so selfish, and then, when they have never made an effort or a sacrifice themselves, they come to you and talk such a lot of hypocrisy. I know so much better than anyone else whether I should marry or not. But I don't mind telling you that I don't see why I should. I am not in such a bad position, with my liberty and a decent maintenance. In this manner she rambled on, gravely and communicatively, contradicting herself at times, not talking fast, she never did, but dropping one simple sentence, with an interval, after the other, with a certain richness of voice which always was part of the charm of her presence. She wished to be convinced against herself, and it was a comfort to her to hear herself argue. I was quite willing to be part of the audience, though I had to confine myself to very superficial remarks for when I had said the event I feared would kill Miss Bernardstone I had said everything that was open to me. I had nothing to do with Lady Vandela's marrying, apart from that I probably disappointed her. She had caught a glimpse of the moral beauty of self-sacrifice, of a certain ideal of conduct, I imagine it was rather new to her, and would have been glad to elicit from me, as a person of some experience of life, an assurance that such joys are not insubstantial. I had no wish to wind her up to a spiritual ecstasy from which she would inevitably descend again, and I let her deliver herself according to her humor, without attempting to answer for it that she would find renunciation the road to bliss. I believe that if she should give up Mr. Tester she would suffer accordingly, but I did and think that a reason for not giving him up. 
Before I left her she said to me that nothing would induce her to do anything that she did and think right. It would be no pleasure to me, don't you see? I should be always thinking that another way would have been better. Nothing would induce me, nothing, nothing. 8. She protested too much, perhaps, but the event seemed to show that she was in earnest. I have described these two first visits of mine in some detail, but they were not the only ones I paid her. I saw her several times again, before she left town, and we became intimate, as London intimacies are measured. She ceased to protest, to my relief, for it made me nervous, she was very gentle, and gracious, and reasonable, and there was something in the way she looked and spoke that told me that for the present she found renunciation its own reward. So far, my skepticism was put to shame, her spiritual ecstasy maintained itself. If I could have foreseen then that it would maintain itself till the present hour I should have felt that Lady Vandela's moral nature is finer, indeed, than mine. I heard from her that Mr. Tester remained at his father's, and that Lady Emily and her daughter were also there. The day for the wedding had been fixed, and the preparations were going rapidly forward. Meanwhile, she didn't tell me, but I gathered it from things she dropped. She was in almost daily correspondence with the young man. I thought this a strange concomitant of his bridal arrangements, but apparently, henceforth, they were bent on convincing each other that the torch of virtue lighted their steps, and they couldn't convince each other too much. She intimated to me that she had now effectually persuaded him, always by letter, that he would fail terribly if he should try to found his happiness on an injury done to another, and that of course she could never be happy, in a union with him, with the sight of his wretchedness before her. That a good deal of correspondence should be required to elucidate this is perhaps after all not remarkable. One day, when I was sitting with her, it was just before she left town, she suddenly burst into tears. Before we parted I said to her that there were several women in London I liked very much, that was common enough, but for her I had a positive respect, and that was rare. My respect continues still, and it sometimes makes me furious. About the middle of January Ambrose Tester reappeared in town. He told me he came to bid me goodbye. He was going to be beheaded. It was no use saying that old relations would be the same after a man was married. They would be different. Everything would be different. I had wanted him to marry. And now I should see how I liked it he did and mention that I had also wanted him not to marry. And I was sure that if Lady Vandela had become his wife— she would have been a much greater impediment to our harmless friendship than Jocelyne Bernard Stone would ever be. It took me but a short time to observe that he was in very much the same condition as Lady Vandela. He was finding how sweet it is to renounce, hand in hand with one we love. Upon him, too, the peace of the Lord had descended. He spoke of his father's delight at the nuptials being so near at hand, at the festivities that would take place in Dorsetshire when he should bring home his bride. The only allusion he made to what we had talked of the last time we were together was to exclaim suddenly, How can I tell you how easy she has made it? She is so sweet, so noble. She really is a perfect creature. I took for granted that he was talking of his future wife, but in a moment, as we were at cross-purposes, perceived that he meant Lady Vandela. This seemed to me really ominous. It stuck in my mind after he had left me. I was half tempted to write him a note to say, There is, after all, perhaps, something worse than your jilting Miss Bernard Stone would be, 
and that is the danger that your rupture with Lady Vandalum may become more of a bond than your marrying her would have been for heaven's sake. Let your sacrifice be a sacrifice. Keep it in its proper place. Of course I did end right. Even the slight responsibility I had already incurred began to frighten me, and I never saw Mr. Tester again till he was the husband of Jocelyn Bernardstone. They have now been married some four years. They have two children, the eldest of whom is, as he should be, a boy. Sir Edmund waited till his grandson had made good his place in the world, and then, feeling it was safe, he quietly, genially surrendered his trust. He died, holding the hand of his daughter-in-law, and giving it doubtless a pressure which was an injunction to be brave. I don't know what he thought of the success of his plan for his son, but perhaps, after all, he saw nothing amiss, for Jocelyn is the last woman in the world to have troubled him with her sorrows. From him, no doubt, she successfully concealed that bewilderment on which I have touched. You see I speak of her sorrows as if they were a matter of common recognition. Certain it is that any one who meets her must see that she does and pass her life in joy. Lady Vandela, as you know, has never married again. She is still the most beautiful widow in England. She enjoys the esteem of everyone, as well as the approbation of her conscience, for everyone knows the sacrifice she made, knows that she was even more in love with Sir Ambrose than he was with her. She goes out again, of course, as of old, and she constantly meets the baronet and his wife. She is supposed to be even, very nice, to Lady Tester, and she certainly treats her with exceeding civility. But you know, or perhaps you don't know, all the deadly things that, in London, may lie beneath that method. I don't in the least mean that Lady Vandela has any deadly intentions. She is a very good woman, and I am sure that in her heart she thinks she lets poor Jocelyn off very easily. But the result of the whole situation is that Jocelyn is in dreadful fear of her, for how can she help seeing that she has a very peculiar power over her husband? There couldn't have been a better occasion for observing the three together, if together it may be called, when Lady Tester is so completely outside, than those two days of ours at Doubleton. That's a house where they have met more than once before. I think she and Sir Ambrose like it. By she, I mean, as he used to mean, Lady Vandela. You saw how Lady Tester was absolutely white with uneasiness. What can she do when she meets everywhere the implication that if two people in our time have distinguished themselves for their virtue, it is her husband and Lady Vandela? It is my impression that this pair are exceedingly happy. His marriage has made a difference, and I see him much less frequently and less intimately. But when I meet him I notice in him a kind of emanation of quiet bliss. Yes, they are certainly in felicity. They have trod the clouds together, they have soared into the blue, and they wear in their faces the glory of those altitudes. They encourage, they cheer, inspire, sustain, each other, remind each other that they have chosen the better part of course they have to meet for this purpose, and their interviews are filled, I am sure, with its sanctity. He holds up his head, as a man may who on a very critical occasion behaved like a perfect gentleman. It is only poor Jocelyn that droops. Haven't I explained to you now why she doesn't understand? 